space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Don't touch that dial, because you're in the right place, just the wrong era. No, we have not gone back in time, and you are on the other side of midnight. Um, Tonight is a very special show. There's a lot of stuff going on in space, literally right now, as we're broadcasting here live from the Land of Enchantment. At the moment, the uh, Russian spacecraft, the MS-18 Soyuz vehicle, is about to enter the atmosphere and land in Kazakhstan on the steps of a high plane uh, at about 36 minutes after the hour. So it will be kind of uh, past our first break at the bottom of the hour in the show. Meanwhile, um, there is a spacecraft, an unmanned spacecraft called Lucy. Uh, That's not an acronym. That's a real name, which is headed for a 12-year odyssey, a 12-year mission to the outer solar system, to the Trojan asteroids, both leading and trailing Jupiter by 60 degrees each. And we'll talk more about that this morning. And last but not least, three days ago, uh, James Tiberius Kirk, a.k.a. William Shatner, after um, 55 years, finally made it into space himself and became a changed human being. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that this morning. Uh, Before we get to all of that, however, uh, let me do a couple of news items here at the top of the hour. Um, First of all, La Palma. As you know, we've been watching this island off the northwestern coast of Africa for several weeks now. Um, There's a reason tonight to watch it even more closely If you click on item number one in Radio with Pictures, and for you who are new to the show, let me tell you how to get there. You go to tonight's banner on the homepage. Click on the banner. You have to click because we have a small problem. You click on the uh, description above the banner, the text, and that will take you to tonight's uh, guest page. Or you can go over to the left. I'm not sure where it is on a phone where it says tonight's show. You click on that, and that will take you to the guest page. And you uh, click on, under the banner on the guest page, My Items, where it says Fast Links. Click on My Name. That will take you to the section of Radio with Pictures where I have some news posted. Um, Item number one, La Palma. Uh, They had the strongest earthquake this morning they've had uh, up until now, something like 10 times stronger than the previous quakes. They're talking about a lava tsunami that raced down the slopes of the volcano into the ocean also at about the same time. And as you know, we're watching La Palma very carefully because there is a worst case scenario where half the island could literally slide into the Atlantic Ocean, 
raising a mega tsunami, which would not be good for beagles and begonias all around the North Atlantic and some of the South Atlantic Ocean Basin. And uh, if you want to know the details of all that, we've been talking about it every week for the last, uh, ever since the first eruption in mid-September. So just listen to those previous shows. But if you're along the coast, I would strongly remind you that you should put the alert for La Palma on your phone for seismic and volcanic events. And in case something really bad happens, meaning that tsunami begins, uh, you'll have about, if you're on the East Coast, of the United States, you'll have about nine hours to get out of Dodge. Um, in fact, if you have a kind of a safe place inland, it might be useful to take a couple of weeks off and just go spend some time inland. Uh, that's what I told my brother, who happens to live right there along the coast in North Carolina. So uh, they fortunately are able to go inland, and uh, they're watching very carefully. Item number two. As you know, I started the show a little differently tonight. Boy, that brought back memories. Item number two is a video from Blue Origin, which shows William Shatner gazing at the Earth as the spacecraft, the Blue Origin's uh, spacecraft, arced over in its suborbital flight, giving them about four minutes of zero gravity. And while you'll see all the other, three other uh, participants in the spaceflight kind of floating around the cabin and tossing M&Ms or Skittles or whatever they, you know, folks think they need to do in zero gravity. What was so impressive to me is that Bill Shatner literally just sat floating by the window, gripping the edge and gazing out into space from the altitude of 60 plus miles, just soaking it all in. And of course, when he came back down, his comments were extraordinary, and we're going to talk about those comments uh, when we get to the guest section of the show in a couple of minutes. Item number three, as I said at the top of the show, right now the uh, Russian um, actress Yulia Prolikliv and uh, her producer-director and a senior cosmonaut from the, having spent something like 500 and 31 days in Earth orbit in the International Space Station are all heading home in the Soyuz spacecraft for a splashdown in about half an hour on the steppes of Kazakhstan. They've been spending 12 days in Earth orbit in the International Space Station shooting a movie. I mean, a really amazing movie. So now what you want to do is you want to move down and click on number four, in my items. This is a, um, a comment by a former astronaut, a Canadian astronaut. Seems to be uh, uh, Canada's night to shine in, in terms of uh, what we're doing here on the other side of midnight. Um, the um, astronaut who is a NASA astronaut who has spent an awful lot of time in Earth orbit, his name is Chris Hadfield. He just published a um, a uh, new sci-fi novel entitled, hmm, this is interesting, The Apollo Murders. He spent a total of 166 days in space across three missions, first to Mir and then to Isis, and is no stranger to being behind or in front of a floating camera. He's an IMAX cameraman. He helped the mission to Mir and Space Station 3D. 
He also recorded and filmed a cover for David Bowie's Space Oddity during his tenure as commander of ISIS and knows better than most the challenges behind living and working in space, let alone making art in zero gravity. So we're going to be talking about that uh, this morning with our guests. Uh, We have two people from the land of Hollywood who have proclivities in that direction, and that will get us very deep into the weeds in terms of uh, both making uh, movies in orbit as well as uh, William Shatner's rather uh, obviously uh, changing, life-changing experience uh, via his own words. Now, if you scroll a little further down, item number five, um, NASA launched early this morning on this Saturday, very busy Saturday, at 5.34 a.m. Eastern uh, Daylight Time. They launched a mission, a 12-year mission called Lucy, which is designed to leave Earth, make two close passes uh, by the Earth in the next couple of years using the Earth as a gravitational slingshot, then head out to the uh, Jovian orbit, passing a major belt asteroid on the way so they can practice their uh, reconnaissance and imagery and other science data taking. And then a couple of years after that, in 2027, in August, the spacecraft will enter the first uh, leading L4 position the so-called Lagrange 4 position, 60 degrees ahead of Jupiter at five times the distance of the Earth to the Sun. And they will spend many, many, many months cruising through this very densely, for space, you know, uh, comparisons, densely populated region of space where there reside a whole bunch of what are called Trojan asteroids, These are asteroids that are trapped in a kind of a gravitational cul-de-sac. And the model is that if they've been placed there from the dim origins of the solar system, which in the mainstream model is four and a half billion years ago, they should still be there. And so the mainstream idea is by cruising through many asteroids on this mission, they will encounter eight individual separate asteroids spaced over those 12 years. And in the first round, as they cruise through the L4 position, which is the uh, Lagrange point leading Jupiter, uh, ahead of Jupiter in its orbit around the sun, they will encounter four or five, I believe. And the missed distances or the closest approaches will be on the order of 600 miles. And they've got cameras on board including color cameras, which will be able to resolve uh, something like a fly from the distance of a football field away. So from 600 miles, they will be seeing things on the order of a few tens of feet across. And some of these bodies are like 60 or 50 miles in diameter, rotating relatively fast. So for several days before And after the encounters, the uh, asteroids will get larger and larger and larger in their field of view, and then they will whip by 600-plus miles uh, away from the surface, and then the asteroid will recede as they move further beyond into the darkness, preparing for their next encounter. 
Um, all of this starts in a couple, three years, and it will provide for the next 12 years periodic encounters with a range of really remarkable objects. And maybe in the third hour, uh, we will uh, talk about the details of some of those objects and why just maybe, just maybe, the mainstream uh, projection of what they're actually going to be flying by may not be actually true. So with that out of the way, um, let me introduce our guests. We have a new guest tonight who's never been on the other side of midnight before. He's a colleague of Andrew's, Andrew Curry, who was with us. Uh, his name is Robin, Robin, Robert Scratch Mitchell. Uh, the Scratch is a nickname. He's a third generation military pilot Flying was in his blood. He joined the RCAF, that's the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, to be a fighter pilot after receiving a degree in sociology. He recalls the harrowing tale of his grandfather, who flew, who flew Spitfires in Europe in World War II, and proudly watched his dad fly jets in the 70s and 80s. After topping his flying courses, Rob went on to not only become a fighter pilot flying CF-18s, he was selected as an air show pilot, both in the CF-18 and the world-renowned Snowbirds jet team. Uh, moving down, we've got the whole bio here on the website, so you can go and, and um, uh, take a look yourself. Um, at, at some later point in his life, he realized that he actually wanted to be an actor. And so he developed a parallel passion for acting and performing and after studying acting and the film industry for many, many years, he could not deny it he found another life's calling. So after 20 years in the Air Force, he realized he had to live up to his countless motivational speeches to school kids to pursue and bite into your dreams. He submitted his release and announced that he was going to retire from the Air Force to become a full-time television and movie producer, actor, and air show pilot and there's all kinds of things that i want to ask him when we uh, bring him on our second guest of the morning is uh, a return guest we've had dr douglas plata who was a physician and a public health specialist from loma linda california his undergraduate degree was in biophysics and he went on to complete his md and mph with specialty training in family and preventive medicine but his primary interest lies tonight in space and the development of cost-effective transportation systems to the moon based on lunar polar ice and other resources for propellant and the establishment of humanity's first permanent foothold off the earth and i thought it would be kind of nice to talk to him tonight as we begin literally what i've termed and many others have termed the star trek universe with bill shatner's rather remarkable foray into space and his real, real transformation. Finally, uh, last but not least, we've got Andrew Curry, who of course is one of our you know, primary guests for many, many years. He's a member of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team. He's working on a book uh, with us on the uh, artifacts that we have, uh, are continuing to discover on Mars. And um, he will be with us as as someone who has kind of worked in another part of the uh, uh, film industry. And last but not least, Ron Gerbron will join us in the third hour um, to add a bit of salt and pepper and other seasoning from his background as a kind of resident generalist for the other side of midnight. Uh, 
So without further ado, let me open the mic and welcome my guest to the other side. And someone needs to kill their mic because we're getting a um, an echo. Are we clear? Okay. Robert, are you here? I am, Richard. Wonderful. I am. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> no problem. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Douglas, are you with us? Yes, I am. Also good to be here. Okay. Andrew? Yes. Yes, I am. Super. Well, obviously, the first question, Robert, is how did you get the nickname Scratch? Uh, very few people I admit that story to, but it's unlike the movies, uh, fighter pilot movies, where they're cool and uh, clever call signs. In the, in the reality of being a fighter pilot, you typically get a nickname for some blunder or some foible that you've <laughs> committed. And uh, indeed, when I was a baby fighter pilot at 24 years old on my first squadron, uh, in my second week on the squadron, I was uh, tasked to go do some air-to-air refueling, and I was asked if I'd ever done that before. And I, I said yes eagerly, and uh, we went out there, and it was an entirely different type of airplane to air-to-air refuel off of. And I did the, uh, the worst thing that a pilot ever can do is assume. I assumed it was the same, and it was, went horribly wrong, and I was forever known as the scratch man. Oh. And, uh, oh. <laughs> so so the, uh, in, the, in the day, they told me the canopy of an F-18 was about a quarter million dollars. So it was, uh, it was with... Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. You bumped into the boom? The uh, the basket on an F eighteen and you and you scratch the canopy. Yeah, quite dramatic. Oh well, luckily it didn't shatter. No, that's what I said. And and being uh, a young fighter pilot, and I saw the what I thought was a rub mark. I went in and I told the ground crew, uh, I think you should be able to buff it out. (laughs) And they they came back with wide eyes and they said, "You just about lost the canopy and your head." Oh my God, you would have been. You know, I was uh, the scratch man. So you're a lucky scratch man. I am, yeah. And and then the other part of call signs and fighter pilots is that uh, I was told early on, having been, uh, you know, being a son of a uh, jet pilot and grandfather fighter pilot, is um, if the if the community wants to give you a nickname and it's one that you uh, you really dislike, pretend you like it. If Mm. it's one that you don't mind pretend you hate it and so i i said scratch i could sort of live with that so i pretended that that i hated them like scratch oh it sounds like a skin disease no 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 like, scratch man it is so wow I, what a I sort story of played the game wow and so now you're all right we have to ask now which do you want to be called tonight you know, the truth of it is, Richard, the entire world calls me Scratch. And I was, uh, after I left the Air Force a few years ago, I, I was still flying air shows in the air show circuit. And I was, one side of my card was Rob, uh, Scratch Mitchell Aviator. And the other side in my film, uh, my burgeoning film career was Robert J. Mitchell Film and Television. And then eventually the, all the directors and everyone that was working with me got wind of my backstory and they all called me Scratch. So I said, heck with it. So the whole world calls me Scratch, and so please do. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's actually, you must be really lucky because you came within a whisker of not being here tonight. Oh, do tell. <laughs> wow. Well, that's one hell of a background. So let me ask the next question. 
what got you into film and television? I mean, I can see in your genes flying is something amazingly cool. You know, grandfather, father, you. But how did you get bit by Hollywood? Well, it, it really, it manifestly, it goes back to my first days as an airshow pilot in the Air Force when I was uh, a young snowbird pilot on our, our military jet team. Uh, came to the Blue Angels and Thunderbirds in the United States. Uh, the Red Arrows in the, in the in the UK, and I, uh, I we were exposed to a lot of media. We were exposed to disc, uh, documentary crews, and I found that I I enjoyed uh, being part of it in front of the camera. But I was also fascinated by the behind the scenes and the the production and the the machine that went into producing film and television. And so that inspired me. But in truth, it goes back even further because I was asking myself that question: Why would I give up? effectively a uh, promising career as a colonel and as they were indicating likely a general in the air force and going on to you know bigger better things as in in the air force uh to leave all that and get into film and television at 39 40 years old seems ludicrous but I, as a child i actually remember stealing my father's 8 mil camera and stringing on fishing line x-wing fighters and sliding them down and creating effects and trying to film those air those x-wing fighters and uh and make little movies out of them unfortunately in the time this was the early 80s i i broke the camera and then that ended my early Uh-oh. film career <laughs> but you, then you you seem to have a problem with technology high technology well i don't know it's uh <laughs> they, they, they say you know one of the most dangerous things in aviation is a as a pilot with a wrench so they say, uh, you know, I'll just I'll stick to the flying and the creative stuff and maybe not touch the equipment. But I must say, you know, in, in sort of the theme we're all having and talking about with sort of the merging of film and and space, my earliest memory of going to a, a, a moving picture at a theater was when I was four years old and a babysitter brought me to Robinson Crusoe on Mars. And I remember being overwhelmed by the imagery and this massive screen and this this crazy world that was being presented to me and that believe it or not was one of the things that planted a seed early in me that i wanted to be involved in something that created a magical world and i think that's in a in a large way what's carried me through all these years and why i do what i try to do in film and television now so what was your first reaction when you saw or heard that the Russians were going to try to shoot a full-length movie, at least a major portion of it, in zero gravity with a really gorgeous blonde actress who I um, seems to have taken to zero gravity like a duck to water, um, given all the difficulties of just shooting on, on the uh, ground. Well, the first thing I thought was, dang, I really wish I had learned Russian. <laughs> Because I really would have liked to have been there, and uh, with with great envy and 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 the possibility of being in the arts and yet having an opportunity to go to space, uh, I think that was a really profound moment for civilization and and for myself. Saying, "Wow," not saying that it's out of the question for me, but uh, you know, I had submitted at this point in my life that you know, space might not be a reality for me, but those, that 
this last week has really sort of. Well, I was going to say, if Bill can go at 90, I know. I mean, 90 years of age. I just did a calculation. When Lucy flies by the last pair of asteroids in the asteroid belt, I will be 90. (laughs) And I'm wondering, where am I going to be watching it from? From orbit? I mean, Bill has opened up so many doors. And so let, let me get back to how you got ready to, to do film and television. You actually worked with Roland Emmerich, who was a major, major, you know, producer, done all kinds of astonishing things, uh, um, you know, that are kind of at the edge. How did you wind up working with Emmerich? And what did well, you work on? Uh, the, the movie was Midway. And so that's right up my alley, being an aviation specialist in film and television. For those so. people who are too young to remember islands in the South Pacific, what was Midway? Why is it important? Well, it's, it's a really important uh, uh, battle. It really was in, in the Pacific theater in World War II. It was uh, arguably the turning point for the Pacific uh, theater. It was after um, Pearl Harbor, of course, and a couple other battles but it really was that the nexus of the U.S. forces and the Japanese forces coming together and that the, the fact that the U.S. sank four major aircraft carriers and the Battle of Midway turned the tide uh, the Japanese Imperial forces could no longer sustain. And so it was a pretty pivotal aspect to that period. And of course, there there was a classic movie with Charlton Heston. Um, Remember with, it well. The, yes, a, you know, a very good, very accurate. And and to hear that Roland Emmerich, who, as we all know um, from Stargate and Independence Day, typically science fiction or uh, preposterous, calamitic <laughs> movies, and. Uh, to do something like this was very intriguing and it was through a friend who was doing some production work on that that reached out to me and said hey uh, you're an aviation guy and uh, we might need some help and that really started the ball rolling well how did you even connect with Emmerich I mean you're in British Columbia right that is correct and he's in Hollywood and never the twain in other words how did you how did you uh you know, uh, make your bones so that an Emmerich would even pay attention. Well, this is where this producer who was doing uh, quite a bit of pro- producing for the film reached out to me, who was also a Vancouver producer. Ah. And he uh, he just happened to say they are planning to uh, roll in and his production, uh, production designer and a couple of VFX folks are hoping to go visit some museums and aircraft museums are you able to connect them with anyone and i said uh, absolutely i in my airshow world i know um, most of the owners of these uh, rare warbirds that were uh, used in the, in the battle of midway and i said um, you know i can connect them up but then this is like everything in life uh, i took the initiative and i said um you know i'm going to be in los angeles around that time not knowing that, uh, or I wasn't actually planning. I just said that. <laughs> he said, well, you're welcome to join. I said, perfect. I'll be there. Oh, so see, you matched the first down. criteria for Hollywood. <clears throat> Chutzpah. You got to create the opportunities. Yep. And, and so I went down and I joined them on this day long trip 
And uh, I really connected with Roland, and I think he saw that I was a genuine aviator. I think, and he saw that I had uh, a creative instinct, perhaps, with uh, film and television, and an understanding of the story and a passion for the story. And uh, and then, like all of this, it's it's really about relationships and spending a full day with somebody. You get a sense of what they're like, and uh, I was invited to continue in the film. So that was, uh, you know, where it all started in this case. So Scratch made his own good luck. <laughs> Sometimes you need to create your own good luck. You need yes. to create your own good luck. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's take a slight pause here. I'm going to bring Andrew on, and we'll be joined by Ron Gerbron at the uh, uh, top of the third hour. I've got a million questions, but I have one obvious one about the making of Midway, but I'm going to save that until we uh, actually return. You are on the other side of midnight. We're going to be doing some interesting things tonight that will be a little different than normal. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're talking about Bill Shatner, finally, a captain going into space. We shall return. Suddenly, they discovered this thing called deuterium. They've actually shown studies that depleting the water by 30% actually makes mice thrive and grow faster, and increasing the deuterium in water by 30% kills them. So in every liter of water, there's approximately six drops of deuterium. Well, if we were to put six drops of cyanide in our water, we probably wouldn't make it. A poison is a poison. Now, this is an isotope, so this is a radioactive, but it is stable. But I believe deuterium serves many, many, many purposes. The history, really, what we should know is the global must have an agenda. And their agenda is to keep us as dumbed down as possible and so we don't recognize what they do and we comply. Part of the way of doing that is keeping it sick. Most water is about 155, but anything about 120 actually can affect us from literally a psychosis level and it's affecting our pineal gland and our pituitary gland and of course our right brain. So what happens is Excess deuterium makes it sick. Even on the National Institute Health website, they talk about deuterium helping propagate leukemia. And that's them admitting, because they always have to disclose their BS. 
that's them admitting it. So you can imagine the other things that it does to our body. It, we don't resonate. We don't sleep very well. I think it is the single biggest tool that the globalists, the cabal, it's the biggest tool they have that puts us in a state that we don't recognize anything and we don't resonate and vibrate at the highest level possible. Hello, Lewis Herms here. Wow, what a fantastic time on the other side of the news with the eclectic cast. What incredible information, and I was so happy to be here. to this Saturday night, the other side of midnight, October 16th, 2021. We're talking about Bill Shatner opening up for real, not as Captain Kirk, but as Bill himself, the space frontier. And we're going to be talking with uh, our other guests this morning about some of the technical developments that are making that happen, kind of at warp nine, but... uh, uh, Scratch, let me let me get back to you and ask you a very important question. Given that your training is in jet aircraft, how were you able to advise a film about Corsairs and prop-driven planes in World War II in a movie called Midway? Right. Well, I think one of the basic tenets of that is uh, a fighter pilot's a fighter pilot, and having um, done dive attacks and having pulled, you know, incredible G forces and having your effectively your hair on fire flying low level and feeling the, the, the balance between excitement and terror in flying a fighter airplane is the same now as it was then. And so one of my main roles in that, in that film was to coach the actors uh, before and during the filming and to help roll and direct those scenes to bring that level of authenticity and that intensity and that that focus and that that engagement that is required of a fighter pilot to to do those types of things. And so in that regard, it's uh, it's very translatable. And on the other side of it, um, you know, I really studied the history of it. Of course, I was knowledgeable to a degree, but going into the film in the six months leading up to it, I was I was studying it and I had a, a partner that was providing me all sorts of technical diagrams and I was helping inform the, the construction of the replica airplanes that ultimately we shot in in a studio. And so I became immersed in it. I breathed uh, World War II Pacific Theater for several months. Did Emmerich depend on models, three-dimensional models, or did he use CGI? It, it, they were both. And so we uh, collectively created these replicas down to the millimeter. Wow. I would say they were unbelievable. Um, just the level of uh, detail and commitment from the, the crews that are creating these. Uh, they were actually created right here in Vancouver. 
in North Vancouver and then trucked to Montreal where they were filmed. And, and then um, when parts of the airplanes weren't required, those pieces were removed and put on these three axis gimbals and what have you. And then everything was, was uh, CGI uh, blue screened in the background and green screened. And then CGI was added to them. But even so, um, they created effectively a one-to-one scale uh, aircraft carrier in the largest oh um, studio gosh. in the Mel Studio. It was, it was again, I'll use that word preposterous. Like I walked in there, <laughs> I, I, I giggled to myself. I said, my God, they they built an aircraft carrier safe for a... Wait, wait, wait. You, you mean with a thousand foot long flight deck? Oh, it was it was immense. They basically they didn't have it the full length, and they, and they weren't quite a thousand feet. Uh, so was it forced perspective? It was there. There were there were several hundred feet of the aircraft carrier that were constructed, and I think it was only um, short of eight feet wide from the original. And uh, then they they green screened the ends of the carrier, uh, but the 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 big section of it was created in uh in physical presence wow amazing yeah. oh wow you know uh who else actually borrowed a real aircraft carrier and shot an entire movie in it do you remember i i'm i'm drawing a blank right now doug trumbull when he shot yeah. silent running remember silent running come on tell me somebody oh, remembers silent running i with, do but with, with, I'm with, gonna have to, with bruce stern what and the three little robots, Huey, Louie, and Dewey, and the forests and all, that was shot in the Lexington. No, no kidding. Wow. Yep. And now he, you've got my mind spinning. I need and, to look at that. And he got it for a song. I mean, he literally, the Navy said, hey, you want to borrow this aircraft carrier, you know? And he kind of came to them. He said, yeah, sure. So they gave him the whole damn ship. And it was so convincing as a vast mega spacecraft a la, you know, a couple of yeah. centuries from now. But yeah, that was all, all those Carter scenes where the little robots are running down the long corridors, sure. all in the Lexington. And it wasn't the one that went down. It was, it was, it was uh, a, a renamed later ship, like <clears throat> the Enterprise aircraft carrier has several iterations and they're going to come up with another one. She'll be the sister ship to the Ford uh, in a couple, three years, joining the John F. Kennedy. And who, as you know, was destroyed in uh, in what was it, Independence Day? No, it was um, oh oh um, Deep Impact. Right. That scene where the aircraft carrier is rolling over the White House in the wave. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So okay, um, let me let me try something here. I want to play some sound. This is from CNN. Uh, but but before I do that, let me ask the obvious question. Did Star Trek, the original or the, the series with Patrick Stewart or all the other iterations, the movies, Discovery, whatever, um, did it play any role in your entrancement with Hollywood and sci-fi and uh, uh, going upstairs? It, it really did. Uh, I can't even say it enough. And I will say that the original uh, and that opening credit sound that you played still rings. <laughs> Doesn't note. that take you back? It does. And I was a little kid and there were obviously reruns in my case. Uh, and I used to just 
salivate to watch those and I, I i craved the next time i could watch those and even now i if they're on i stop what i i'm doing and i'll watch and and i i think it was again i was fascinated with uh space and aviation and and things uh outside the the ordinary and that really is a big part of you know why i became a fighter pilot because that was a to me, it was as close as I could get to go into outer space in a conceivable way. And, and then I think even in film and television, the, my aspirations uh, started with aviation because I had very good advice early on. They say, start with what's in your back pocket if you want to go anywhere but starting at the bottom. Well, it's and like so they tell writers, you know, write what you know. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, rest assured, you'll be seeing um, – science fiction coming out of my uh, production repertoire in my in my life because that's that's really where my mind travels nightly and when I wake every day and uh, and you're absolutely right I think Star Trek above all as one of those pieces of science fiction that has inspired me the most I just couldn't get over how a you know Bezos somehow got billed to do this because, you know, Bill was not really kidding when he said he was terrified. You know, he's, mm. he's not a macho guy. He's, he's obviously very thoughtful, and he understood the risks, and he wanted to do it anyway. He's not, as you may have noticed, in the best of shape at 90. And yet he sprang out of that, that spacecraft, and he, he couldn't stop talking. So before we get to that, I want to I move on to, to Doug. Um, Dr. Plata. You are a medical doctor. You are heavily invested in, you know, starting the, the high frontier, moving us into some version of the Star Trek universe. What role did, did uh, the original series, did Star Trek play in prompting that interest in what's going on beyond low Earth orbit? Well, like Scratch, I did watch uh, the um, the original uh, series, but uh, in as reruns, um, and then you know the the later versions of Star Trek. All of them, I think, were were very inspiring for me. Uh, but my career was headed towards medicine, and so it didn't really change my trajectory uh, at that point. Um, well, were you uh, ever interested in space medicine? Because that's a huge deal in the series. You know, Bones is such a character and the medical anomalies that he, you know, and then the later iterations of him, like Gates McFadden in the, in the next generation and all that. Um, did, did medicine in space interest you? Um, really, medicine and space, I mean, it seems like a logical combination. Obviously, a, lot of, you know, a number of people have asked me that very question because I'm interested in space. I do medicine. Um, but I, I had the opportunity to pursue, uh, you know, aerospace medicine, uh, and I was just sort of too far into my career uh, and didn't want to do a residency over again. I, you know, I, I have some, I think everybody who goes through the intern year has some, some horror stories to tell, uh, you know, 100-hour work week. I was going to say, besides lack of sleep. Mm. Yeah, so plenty, plenty of that. It's, it's better nowadays. Um, but I, I did make a decision that in terms of my space advocacy work that I was uh, not going to try to make a career out of it, uh, but it was going to be a, you know, a passion, sort of a, an intellectual hobby uh, that, I've, that I'm you know, very much engaged in. I was going to say, so how religiously 
has that um, uh, resolution held? Uh, of of not getting uh, into aerospace medicine or mm-hmm. what? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I'm very interested in the in the human factors. I mean, I certainly do apply my uh, medical perspective to the issues. But I mean, like I, if, I, if if someone Musk or Bezos or you know even Branson offered you a, a a trip as a doctor to look at physiology and zero gravity, what would you do? Oh, I would accept. See. Of course. See? <laughs> uh, absolutely. No, that would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, uh, you know, provided that it was safe enough. I have a pretty pretty high, um, high criteria for safety for myself because I, I feel as though I have things here on Earth that I need to do. Uh, and, uh, boy, I mean, when uh, Bezos went up, you know, what was, what was the odds of, of him losing his life? I think it was, you know, maybe one out of 120 or 200, something like that. So that was quite the risk he took. Well, they'd had, what, 16 successful flights of the hardware without passengers up, up to that point. Uh, the early days of space, I don't know whether you ever watched any of the old movies, but the Atlas rocket that the uh, Mercury astronauts flew on had all kinds of astonishing failure modes, including you know, launching and then flipping upside down and blowing up in space. And I mean, it was a catastrophic sequence of test flights before... Those guys said, okay, like, uh, like uh, Glenn, uh, put me in this thing, I'm going. The odds are yeah, much, well, much better now, much. You know, when Challenger blew up, that was STS-51. Uh, and so <clears throat> at that point, is one out of 50 chance of, of dying, uh, unfortunately. So it's, it's hard, to, hard to get a, a real precise estimate of the risk that Bezos took, but it was, I think it was uh, significant. Okay. Um, let me bring Andrew in. Andrew, you're in the business. Um, did you watch Star Trek? Yeah, yeah, as a, as a kid. Uh, I mean, like, just like Scratch said, it was reruns for us, right? Like, well, I well, grew well, up... Let me stop you there. Who cares? Now, uh, hang well, on. Finding it, Bef- finding it, Richard. Before I let you answer, let me, let me tell you a weird story. I was talking to someone the other night, and I asked them, have you ever watched Star Trek? And they said, no, because I was overseas, you know, when it was running. And I said, well, what about the reruns? And I said, well, it really, you know, I, I said, why does it matter that it was a rerun? But apparently, in an era lacking social media, the community of knowing all these people were watching NBC Live on Thursday night, which is when Star Trek originally appeared, had a real important significance in terms of a communal experience long before social media. So the idea that you guys keep saying, oh, I saw the reruns, to me, who cares? It's like the shows stand on their own and their logic and what Gene did and what all those, like Edward Milkus, you know, the, the line producers who did an incredible job in making the impossible seem normal in an era in the 60s when, you know, many things were, were not normal. So, all right, sorry I interrupt, but so you watch the reruns, meaning you found it. And then yeah, and, well, for me, I mean, as you know, I was a real Star Wars, you know, kid. So, you know, I mean, when I saw Star Wars and exploded on the, on the, on the screen, I was just blown away. And I used to 
by this um, science fiction magazine called Starlog. Any um, aficionados out there would know what I'm I remember about. Starlog. Yeah, and they big, a beautiful, hit. color, yeah. glossy magazine like Saturday Evening Post, except devoted yeah. to Star Trek. Yes, a lot of Star Trek. And I remember um, – because the first Star Trek film, the motion picture, came out – what year was that again? 70? 1976, I believe. Yeah, somewhere in the – or was it 79? Anyways, it doesn't matter. Oh, was it later? Okay. Yeah, it might have been. But I remember – Oh, I like, know what happened in 76 abrogated NASA, and we renamed the first damn space shuttle Enterprise over NASA's incredible objection, and they still haven't forgiven me. That's what happened in 76. Well, I remember, again, in the Starlog magazine, you know, they were pitting sort of um, the Star Trek, you know, the sort of re-arrival of the Star Trek universe, right, and that, at that point, in a motion picture with in Starlog magazine against Star Wars. So I kind of took my side, my color for the Star Wars side. <laughs> but I, I love Star Trek, Richard. I you know, now with the restored um version they have, it often comes on the sci fi channel. I've seen it so many times, but these restored Scratch, you know what I'm talking about. They've 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 updated the old the old Star Trek series. You know, BBC so America's running it every night. Oh, it's so beautiful, Richard. And anybody who really wants to enjoy it because remember in those days, I mean, I think we started out with a black and white TV. Oh, look at that. I had a dial-up um, telephone as well. But yeah, no. It, and so we didn't, you know, everything was a bit not as clear as it is now. Like I don't think people realize, I mean, well, the younger generation sort of – if you didn't go to a film, like a theater, you know, you didn't have a laptop to, to stream a movie and you didn't have like these fabulous uh, – what are we 4k now or even mm. further along with her so you know everything was a bit you know um rudimentary right so yeah for me it started out with star wars and i know scratch shared with me a story he was being very um canadian by the way very um <laughs> polite laid back never... <laughs> well the, the midway story um scratch you should relate Relay the story. Come on, about... Scratch. Tell us the backstory. Come on. Well, because you asked him a key question. You said, "Why would they choose you?" And he went through all the, you know, the, the proper things. But then there was a point when there wasn't an authenticity with the actors playing the pilots. Scratch. You remember that story you told me? Yes. Yeah. And and you know, I, I guess I don't like. We to, have plenty uh... of time. We have hours and hours. Well, all right. Um, it. Well, you know, thanks, Andrew, but. You know, I'm also very sensitive to the fact, you know, this this is and was Roland's film and by no means was he was I usurping anything in in there. We've um, all, we've all tell him something we've all something Yeah, right. Remember Connie uh, Chung? That's right. <laughs> um he was very generous with me and uh I took it as uh really one of the, the highlights of my entire film career, which really is only about nine, ten years now. Um Having uh, one of them, someone told me, I think he's one of the the 11th most grossing film director in the history of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, this movie is very, very successful director, obviously, and filmmaker. And he gave me quite a bit of uh, latitude and creative influence on that film. And that wasn't the plan. I was hired as a technical advisor. And then I think through a mutual So did you trust, become like a line producer? No, no, I became part of the creative input on, on set and, and 
I was given the uh, the torch at, uh, several times where he would hand me the director's mic and and say, you know, why don't you go talk to the actor and and we'll see how this take goes, ah. which in some circles is you know unheard of. And so it was very flattering. Obviously, Roland had the final say on the, on those sets, um, but just that uh, that trust he had in me. Um, because I, you know, he saw that I was really engaged with this, and I think he also saw that the actors trusted me as well. And I think that stems from perhaps my authority, subject matter authority, but also I have several years of acting training, and I, I do understand the actor's mind, and I understand the language that can be used with an actor, and and how actors. So think. you were the and perfect so, guy. Well, and, so what you did know, you I, do? You, I like to think so. What did what, you do? Well. You know, I'll give you an example. In one of the scenes, you know, there's uh, it's it's easy to play uh, the prototype fighter pilot, you know, cocky and over the top. But whenever a fighter pilot's in an airplane, they're actually a different person than when they are on the ground. Even when we're being a bit jocular in the airplane over the radio, we are always worried about uh, what's going to kill us next. And and I I remember talking to one of the stars and I said, okay, so you're playing this scene where it's it's very um, you're being over the top. You have a new guy in the back and you're showing them ropes a little bit and you're pushing his, the his comfort level. And I said, but at the same time, you haven't found the aircraft carrier yet. And as a Navy pilot, you're out over the middle of the ocean. You don't find that aircraft carrier. You're gonna die. And I said, the other thing every pilot thinks about every second of every mission is, do I have enough fuel to get home? I said, so the aircraft carrier is about your 10, 11 o'clock position from where you're flying on the nose. And uh, the fuel gauge is down by your right minute or your right knee. Sorry. And uh, I said, you know, just think about that layering when you're delivering, you know, some of the uh, your your lines. And he nailed it. And because we, <laughs> we were able to texture in some gravity and some stakes into that and so that you know that that sort of boisterousness that the scene called for was textured with a reality of the gravity of the situation and and i think that's what garnered me some uh opportunity in that film wow do you remember the story of jim lovell <clears throat> during the korean war when he's flying uh, an aircraft off a, off a carrier I forget which one and he loses his radio and all his instrument lights and it's night and there's no moon and he can't find the carrier. I mean, talk about how lonely that must have been. Terrifying. Yeah. 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 And he knew he had limited fuel, you know, it was wartime. So they weren't all lit up like a Christmas tree. He can't reach them. He doesn't know the heading and imagine that scenario. And you're over an ocean where if you land, you're going to probably die because of sharks. If you survive the uh, the landing, um, I'm I, I don't remember the, the the climax of the story. Obviously, he made it to Apollo 13, where his luck brought him through. But uh, you might want to Google um, uh, Jim Lovell's story of surviving uh, that night when everything went out. Yeah, I think most fighter pilots have one of those stories where you're like, "Why am I here?" And as they say, you know, I'd rather be down there wishing I was up there than up there wishing I was down down there. <laughs> mm. yeah. Okay, we've got about five minutes. I'll tell you what, I'm going to play 
the sound from from Bill when he came back down after his flight after the top of the hour. So let's just talk about Star Trek because to me, the most amazing thing was knowing Roddenberry and being able mm. to input to the original show. And the way I got uh, to do that was uh, a very famous name in um, science fiction, Frederick Pohl, came to Springfield where I was at the museum during the day. And I, was, I had my own radio show across the valley at the crack of dawn. Um, and I kind of split my time between two jobs. And Frederick Pohl came to speak at, I think it was Amherst College. And for some reason, I was able to get in a position to drive him to and from the airport. And while we're driving, we're talking because Fred was, you know, brilliant writer in the 50s, science fiction, you know, space merchants, et cetera, et cetera. So we had this amazing conversation. And it was he who told me that this brand new show, which had come out in September of 1966, which had incredible promise called Star Trek, was going to be canceled by NBC. And of course, I immediately um, decided, you know, at the incredible young age of 20 something, well, maybe I can help. I have a radio show. So I wound up calling Hollywood and trying to get hold of this producer of the series called Gene Roddenberry. His, his, he had a number in the phone book. I called the number, answered the phone. And that was the beginning, as uh, the line in Casablanca goes, of a beautiful friendship. So I'm really into how Star Trek motivated people because, of course, it was one of those things where if I hadn't watched Star Trek and kind of immersed myself uh, in it uh, when, when the CBS called many years later, I wouldn't have had that television background to know how to answer that phone call. Did I lose everybody? Nope. Oh, Scratch okay. it out here. Oh, no, it's, that's, I'm just taking in your story. It's, it's, it, it is. And I think, you know, one of the things as I was hearing Doug talk and Andrew is uh, I, something came to my mind as you were speaking, Andrew, uh, contextualizing Star Trek. And I think for me as well as a, you know, as a, a lover of Star Wars, I think you know, the way I sum up the, the, relationship between the two because obviously there's two camps sometimes and in my case it's both but i would say star wars makes me dream and star trek makes me believe it's possible yeah and yeah. that's the thing i've taken away from star trek all over the years i think yeah i know go ahead oh, richard no no i think go, we're both go ahead i think we're about to fly into the um the break trench right yeah. about now <laughs> yes we are very good <laughs> so let's pause there this should bring back some memories, everyone. We're talking about Star Trek tonight and the fact that Captain James Tiberius Kirk, at the young age of 90, Circuits of the Sun, left the surly bonds of Earth and touched the ineffable. And when we come back, we're going to hear that as he uttered it to Jeff Bezos as he stepped out of the spacecraft on the ground. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Saturday night, October 16th, 2021. You're on the other side of midnight, and we're having an absolutely fascinating time wallowing in nostalgia over a 1960s television show which gave birth to the concept of the Star Trek universe. And three days ago, the chief iconic actor, Bill Shatner, head of that show, head of the persona of Star Trek in many people's minds, if not everybody's minds, he took a step that literally, for him, had gone where he had never gone before. He went to space. He went to orbit. Now, it was only 11 minutes, but it was an amazing 11 minutes. And what I'm going to try to do now, I'm going to try to switch gears And I'm going to try to play the actual actuality of what he said when he returned. So let me click a couple of switches here and we'll see if this is going to work. Everybody in the world needs to be. Everybody in the world needs to see. It's unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, you know, the, the little things of righteousness. But to see the blue cover go whip by, and now you're staring into black. That's the thing. The covering of blue, this, this sheet, this blanket, this, com- this comforter of blue that we have around us. We think, oh, that's blue sky. And then suddenly you shoot through it all of a sudden. And so you whip off the sheet off you when you're asleep. And you're looking into blackness, into black ugliness. And you look down, there's the blue down there. And the black up there. And it's, it's just, there is mother and earth and comfort and there's is there death i don't know was that death is that the way death is when it's gone jesus 
It was so moving to me. This experience is something unbelievable. You see, yeah, you know, uh, weightless, my stomach went up. And I, this is so weird. But not as weird as the powering of blue. This is what I never expected. Oh, it's one thing to say, oh, the sky and the thing and the fragile. It's all true. But what isn't true, what, what is unknown, until you do it, is there's this pillow. There's this soft blue. Look at the beauty of that color. And it's so thin. And you're through it in an instant. It's what a... How thick is it? Is it a mile? Two miles? No, it depends on how you measure because it thins out, but maybe 50 miles. But you're going 2,000 miles an hour. So you're through 50 miles of whatever the mathematics is. You know, it's like a beat and a beat, and suddenly you're through the blue. And you're into black. And you're into, you know, it's mysterious and galaxies and things. But what you see is black. And what you see down there is light. And that's the difference. And not to have this, you have done something. I mean, whatever those other guys are doing, what, is, what isn't, they don't, I don't know about that. What you have given me is the most profound experience I can imagine. Uh, I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just, extraordinary, extraordinary. I hope I never recover from this. I hope that I can uh, maintain what I feel now. I, I don't want to lose it. It's so, so much larger than, than me and life. And it hasn't got anything to do with the little green planet, the blue orb, and the, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the enormity. And the quickness and the suddenness of life and death of the oh my God. It's so beautiful. Beautiful, yes, beautiful in its way, but No, I mean your words. Oh my words. It's just amazing. I don't know, I can't even begin to express what I, I what I would love to do is to communicate as much as possible. The, the jeopardy, the 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 the, the moment you see how vo- the vulnerability of everything—it's so small. This air, which is keeping us alive, is, is thinner than your skin. It's it's a it's a it's a sliver. It's it's immeasurably small when you think in terms of the of the universe. It's a, it's not it's negligible. This air, Mars doesn't have it. Right there, no, no, nothing. I mean, this and wait. And when you think, wait, carbon dioxide change to oxygen. And what is it? Twenty percent of some of that level that sustains our life. It's so thin mm-hmm. to 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 dirty it. I mean, that's another whole. And you shoot subject. through. What's your saying about shooting through it so fast, so quickly? Fifty miles, and you're just in black. And you're, and you're in death. Yeah. In, in the moment this you, is life this is life and that's that and it's in in an instant you go wow that's death that's what i saw that's amazing that's amazing wow. i am i am overwhelmed
I have no idea. You know, we were talking earlier before going, well, you know, it's going to be different. Go, yeah, it's going to, and you have whatever that phrase is you have, that you have a different view of things. Uh, it doesn't begin to, to uh, explain, to, to, to describe what, what it really, well, for me, I mean, everybody's going to, but, it, and this is now the commercial, it, everybody, it, it would be so important for everybody to have that experience through one means or another. I mean, maybe you could put it on 3D and <laughs> wear the goggles yeah. and have that experience. I mean, that's, that certainly is a technical possibility. But, but what you need also, we're lying there in, and I'm thinking, listen, one delay after another delay, we're lying there. And I'm thinking, how do I feel? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm a little jittery here. And, and when they move the pins, oh, there's something in the engine. They found an anomaly in the engine. They found an anomaly in the engine. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to hold a little longer. Oh, you're going to hold a little longer. And I feel this, you know, the stomach, the, 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 the biome inside. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm thinking I'm a little nervous here. Another delay. I'm a little more nervous. And then the thing starts. By the way, the simulation is, they have to be warned. It's only a simulation. Everything else is much more. It doesn't capture. doesn't capture the, the, and besides which, the jeopardy. Bang! This thing hits. You go, oh, you know, <laughs> that wasn't anything like the simulation. What's going to happen to me? Yeah. Am I going to be able to survive the G-forces? Like, you feel that? <laughs> yeah, Am I going to survive it? Yeah. And then I think, good Lord, that like, you know, just getting up the bloody uh, gantry was enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What an experience. But, whew, nothing, nothing. It looked like you had a moment of camaraderie with your Oh, we all hugged each other. And... You know, you share. It's like, like uh, being in battle together, really. Uh, and there is this bonding of being in battle. But, but you're also embattled. Inside yourself. Mm. Oh my goodness! Wow, I have had this. Doug. Yes. You and I have talked about the overview effect. That was the the term that Bill was groping for. I have known Shatner off and on for fifty years. In fact, I was very, you know, lucky to have him on that little radio station outside of Springfield, Massachusetts, back when the series was actually on the air and we were trying to save it. I had him, I had Leonard. Uh, I didn't know whether I had DeForest on or not. Um, anyway, that to me sounds like a guy who had a profound transformation, Doctor. So what's your reaction to Bill? Yes, well, so just uh, for your for your listeners, the overview effect is something that um, Frank White is the uh, one who wrote the book and sort of popularized the idea. And it is well recognized that as astronauts have gone above Earth's atmosphere uh, and they have looked back on the Earth and they've also looked out into the cosmos, that uh, not all of them, but many of them have a significant change in perspective as they look back at the earth. Uh, you know, we, we all can like look at a sunset or climb a mountain, look at the vistas and 
we can uh, find it uh, amazing and profound, but we're not looking back at all of humanity or we're not looking back at, you know, the earth as a, as a unit. Um, and so this overview effect is, is, is unique. Very few people have had that perspective. And many that have had, like Bill Shatner, have varying, you know, they, they have different experiences. Um, but I've uh, never for, heard, let me interrupt, I've never heard anybody as voluble, as emotional, as hard on his sleeve. I mean, Bill is a cynic. <clears throat> Remember the time, Andrew, maybe you didn't hear the story, when the, the Star Trek conventions were in a huge rage back in the uh, 80s, oh, yeah. you know, and I was very fortunate to have been invited, at least I thought I was fortunate, to speak at one of them, the first one in New York, and I had the incredible fortune of following Leonard Nimoy. And there's this 5,000 people in the auditorium, and, you know, Leonard leaves, and I come on stage, and there's three people left. And they kind of slowly trickled back in. But, you know, talk about ego deflating. Anyway, Bill went to one of these and there was a kid, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly important story, uh, who was all dressed up, you know, the costume and everything. And Bill literally said to him on an open mic in front of thousands of people, hey, kid, why don't you get a life? Star Trek is just a television show. <laughs> Did that sound like that Bill Shatner? No, no, no. You know, Richard, may I, may I comment here? Of course. That's why we have yeah. you on. Ah, why do people keep yeah, asking I mean, me these so obvious I mean, questions? <laughs> Go for it. And obviously, Bill Shatner, with who and what he represents mythologically, you know, within our television screens and our movie screens and the countless number of books and comics and the whole pantheon of, of the Star Trek universe – no matter how he may have felt about it, no matter how he may have felt he was typecast, because he was a very talented um, actor. He is a talented actor, and he sings, and he writes, and he's, you know, I mean, his, his Denny Crane in Boston Legal was, was historic. It was perfect, pitch perfect. And he, ha- you know, he has a long history. His um, work in The Twilight Zone um, was amazing. Um, oh, did you yeah. catch the reference he made to it the other morning before they left? No, go ahead. Well, you as a Canadian, talk about Bill Shatner's first Twilight Zone um, scene, all right? So, go ahead. Describe it. Uh, no, no, Richard, you go. You, you wax eloquent better than I. No, go. come on. Come on. Don't be shy. No, no, you go. Anyway, he gets his part in Sterling's movie, and he's on an airplane, a, a DC-6 or whatever, and he's terrified of flying, and his wife has convinced him, and he looks out the window, and he sees this gremlin tearing the wing apart, fascinated by the engine, and he tries to get the other passengers to look out, and of course, when they look out, there's nothing there, and he's a mental patient. He's just been released from a, an asylum, I think, in Mexico. They're flying home, and she, of course, thinks he's gone loopy. And, of course, the gremlin is real, and he's taking the airplane apart at 20,000 feet. Well, Bill looks at the camera just as he's getting in the spacecraft, and he says, I hope I don't see any gremlins. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, well, that's what I mean. And his work going back, you know, from his roots in Ontario, I believe, and his work um, in uh, on stage with Shakespeare. This guy's a multi-talented dude. A writer, as you say, uh, probably well, he's directed as well. He yep, yep, directed. 
written novels. Well, he has, no matter what, been a portal, a gateway, always symbolically, in my opinion, to something more. And now, symbolically, and I know this is where you're going, is he <laughs> was right there on the threshold. He said it. I look down and I see comfort. I see Mother Earth. I see comfort. I see the quilt of blue. I look up and I see death. That's, I, I know what he's saying. I mean, that's the unknown. I mean, that's what he... I mean, that might be his pessimism kind of drifting back a little bit because out there is the great unknown and, and the undiscovered country, right? It's yes, right out there. Yes. And he symbolically has now given us permission and a doorway for what I believe is new mythology, maybe a whole new set of archetypes that are going to begin as we start to explore. See, I can't imagine, given that he played kind of cute with the, you know, the morning shows and you know, he did, uh, 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 you know, uh, CBS, he did, uh, you know, N NBC, the Today Show. Before he went, he was kind of like, oh, I'm terrified. Well, who wouldn't be? But that's not, you know, your heroic Captain Kirk persona. Uh, that's trying to appeal to the average guy or gal who would say, you're not going to get me on that damn thing. <clears throat> In fact, I've talked to a couple of people this week who said, no way they would you know, die kicking and screaming rather than do what he did. And he's 90 years, he could have had a coronary, five G's, or was it three G's? You know, it, it's a lot more than you're ever used to down here on the ground, even in a, uh, you know, roller coaster. And he's not in the best of health. Um, I was very concerned when I, when I saw some of those uh, pre-launch images. He's not in the best of health. He's not taking good care of him. He doesn't have someone like I had Robin taking care of me. And boy, she would be telling us all all the medical things that are wrong with him. But he went anyway, and I just have to feel somewhere, given how smart and sharp and synoptic this guy is, that he knew that as the icon of Star Trek, of Gene's vision, this was a way to introduce hope and a different future to millions of people all over the world at a time when we desperately need hope and he came through in flying colors and all of that that he uttered to Bezos who kind of acted like Spock there not knowing what to say just being a kind of like a foil everything he said was not scripted it was he was crying at time you could see he was so emotionally caught up in this idea of the known and the comfort and the preciousness we have to preserve here. And then as you really, I think you nailed it, the black to him represents the unknown, which for most of us represents death. Yeah. Uh, yes. We were talking about the overview effect. Mm -hmm. And you said before the show that you had some quibbles. So let me hear your quibbles. Oh, sure, sure. Well, um, so Shatner didn't mention this, but oftentimes uh, astronauts, when they, they look back and they, they, they see the, the ground and continents and, and geographic features, uh, what many of them will comment is that they do not see borders. And so this can lead to the idea that, you know, we're really, you know, we're just all one humanity and we should, uh, you know, perhaps again, the overview effect is so individualized, it's, it's hard to generalize what people think. But I have heard instead that, they, you know, it's sort of the idea of, 
we're all one humanity. We should we should sort of get rid of borders and just become one people. Well, but when they return to Earth, that you know what they experienced up there is is not reality. The the reality on Earth is that we do have nations, we do have borders, we do, we have differences, and uh, you know if we shift all politicians to space, <laughs> would they come back and create a one world government? <laughs> I sort of doubt it. You know, I think that there's there's um, you know, life has other factors involved, and I think uh, the overview effect can be uh, can be misleading in that I can sort of show you uh, what looks like the thinness of the atmosphere when, in fact, it's still, you know, 50 miles or however you want to measure it, you know, high and, you know, I don't know, millions of square miles uh, across, you know. So, um I think we need to put this in perspective and recognize that the overview effect is real, uh, but it's so so different for for different people, and it's hard to know exactly what what to make of it. And, and you know, for example, what effect that this experience uh, uh, by William Shatner is, is is going to have on other people? Can you transfer can you transfer the the overview effect to other people, or do they have to experience it themselves? Hmm. Okay, let's hold that there, Robert. Scratch, you're the only one of us who's kind of faced life and death for real up there, pretty high, you know, 50,000, 30,000 feet, whatever. What did you feel about uh, Shatner's reaction? Well, I think the the adventurer in myself and the fighter pilot in myself, uh, I really liked that he was able to encapsulate, no pun intended, that that moment that he experienced and then the the entertainer and the actor in me went what a perfect guy to do it who was able to <laughs> put it in words so that people could understand because most people and and, and certainly astronauts the like fighter pots you're trained to contain everything you're you're trained to contain emotion and to have such a you know a, a powerful and charismatic figure in uh, in popular culture be able to express it. I think that probably reached more people in those few minutes than the combination of all the astronauts in, in history, just because, um, you know, NASA and everyone else, they, they contain that stuff in, in many ways, or it comes out a little bit uh, scripted, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I thought that was so refreshing and powerful that we had a, a man, in this case, an actor, who has spent decades expressing and emoting, be able to do that about space travel, I thought, perfect. But he's not just an actor. He's the guy who played the captain in the Star Trek universe, which got all kinds of people involved in NASA and at JPL and even the Russian space. Remember when Roddenberry added Chekhov? Do you know why he added Chekhov? I don't. Because the Russian ambassador called him up one day and said, you're supposed to have a multidisciplinary crew, and you have no Russians. So Gene added Chekhov to satisfy the Russians. Nobody feels Star Trek is alien. It's the dream. It's the hope. It's the vision that we all are one. And from you know, when I was knee-high to the proverbial grasshopper, the reason I got interested in space is because I felt it would always be that transcendent reality that gave us more in common than we have apart. 
and Bill's reaction. I mean, no other actor could have done this. No, it had to be Bill. I, I really agree with that. And I smiled when I heard it the first time I said, you know, and one of the things, and I think beyond his Captain Kirk role, uh, one of the things I personally admire about him as a fellow entertainer is that he has taken scrutiny over various roles and commercials and things. And he embodies the, the true artist in the sense that in, in improvisation training, you're taught one expression it's called, and it goes as yes. And so when someone gives you uh, (laughs) something to, to work with, you acknowledge that in your head by saying, yes, I'm going to work with what you've said and you build on it. And he's done that his entire life. And I think this is exactly the, you know, the, the penultimate of his character and his himself of saying, would you like to go to space? And he effectively said, yes, and I'm going to tell the world about it. So I thought it was fantastic. I want to know how Bezos got him to say yes. Because that took real courage. You know, you talk about heroes. That took being a real physical hero. You know what it's like to be on the edge of forever with, uh, uh, you know, high technology that could crap out on you at any moment. You had that close brush with death. You know, Bill's smart enough to know, well, they've only had like 16, 17 flights. You know, there's a finite chance that this is my, you know, going out party. But he did well, it that- anyway. I think that's part of that personality that will that he's been able to, and I'm speculating, been able to say yes to various roles and various opportunities. It's part of his personality, and that is, in many ways, that's the Captain Kirk personality. And so he lived up to that that uh, mythical. See, so few public, and I keep interrupting, but that's what I do here. So mm-hmm. few people in public life scratch live up to our imagination of who they are and the thing that struck me is that William Shatner lived up to our best aspirations and hopes and fulfilled his character in a unique and pivotal and I would almost say maybe historic timeline changing way you know three days ago when he came down and let everybody see how vulnerable he was and how how struck he was by the reality of what's up there. Well, it's the great uh, the great debate. Uh, art becomes reality. Reality becomes art. And I think that's uh, the convergence of those right there, which I think is why it's so profound to people like yourself and myself that uh, he's done this. And he's even mixed the language. And like Scratch said, in terms of his character and his trade. When he was talking about the atmosphere, and he said, "How thick is it?" And he goes, "Well, fifty miles." And he goes, "Yeah, but a beat, a beat." Yes, I noticed. I noticed that. Yeah, and that's in a script. That's that's in that's in a script exactly. Yeah, Yeah. can you script or scratch? Scratch, can you explain (laughs) that, please? Well, that's right. When you write, you or you say to just give that a beat. It's it's just a pause. A pause. It's allowing the emotion. It's allowing that that energy in that that moment to just live in a little bit of silence before the scene carries on and the, you know he, he, actors think in terms like the directors think in terms like that just let that sit and give it a beat and and that's you know i, I love that he used that as well hmm 
I'll tell you what, um, Ron, are you with us? Mr. Gerbron. I guess he's not. Yes, I'm here. Oh, there it's you a are. matter of mute, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I have no idea about your weird technology. You've got to most, be the most unhigh tech high-tech guy I've ever known. Anyway, we're at the bottom of the hour. When we come back, I want to bring you on early because I want your unvarnished reaction. Um, to me, good. what's really interesting about the Shatner experience is, A, I want to know how Bezos convinced him. B, I want to know why of all the people that Bezos has sent up into space, including uh, himself, uh, Elon Musk only responded before and after the flight to Bill, where he said, you know, Captain Godspeed before he left. And when he came back, he congratulated him. And I'm just wondering if there is a starship in Bill Shatner's future. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone Saturday night here on the other side of midnight we're talking about Bill Shatner and his transition from the reality in which we're currently living to what I think is perhaps not an historical overstatement but I believe that Bill's venture and journey and his reaction and the fact that he's now been all over every talk show you can imagine uh, all over the dial all over social media talking about the experience I would mark, from a future perspective, that this is when Gene's vision of the Star Trek universe began.
So with that, um, Ron, you're on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm just overwhelmed by the music. I'm expecting a Gorn to jump out <laughs> from the um, shadows at any moment. Oh. Uh, yeah, now I re- I heard an interview with uh, William Shatner a long time ago, and he was talking about the craft. I mean, you know, of acting, and uh, how his vision for Star Trek was a space version of Horatio Hornblower. Well, that that comes directly from Gene when when Gene passed out these little orange folder. Um, show outlines for the writers and the producers and the actors. That was right in Gene's original pitch, that it was wagon train to the stars, that it was, you know, something normal where you didn't describe how your horse works. You simply get on and you ride off into the sunset. So that line came directly from Roddenberry. Well, that makes sense. Uh, But my, yeah, my point is that he has a, he's a thinker. You know, for he may have personality conflicts along the road here and there. <laughs> really? But, uh, <laughs> we all do. I, I, yeah, really? Oh, okay. Uh, I, yeah, he, uh, he's grounded, you know, and so the, uh, that's, I think, why his comments after the flight rang so true. You know, I mean, he didn't surpass. Uh, the lines out of Jodie Foster's character in Contact when she was going through the wormholes and the point at which she broke down at the star nursery and said they should have sent a poet. Yeah, that line will stick with me forever. But, uh, you know, the heart was in the same place. And I, that's, it's Yeah, but the the difference is Jodie's, Jodie's lines were written as a script and Bill's were not scripted. They were totally for real. Yes, yes. And, you know, he was only up there for minutes. By the way, uh, if you go to my second item uh, in Radio with Pictures tonight, just click under the banner, click on my name, and and, uh, take a look at that. What I found so stunning is everybody goes to space, thinks of the floating around in zero gravity, right? He simply sat in, you know, weightlessness by that big window, that huge picture window, that Bezos has offered all these guys and gals. And he just looked and drank it in and appreciated where he was. The hijinks and zero gravity were the farthest thing from his mind. He was absorbing the, the final frontier. And, and Richard, there's the rub. And I know um, we have an expert here on the capsule who wants to describe it, but before you do, um, this is the rub, is that image of him in the video sitting like a little, like a kindergartner. You like know, a kid. Like just, yeah, like a child, and we're now there with him. You know, I mean, Scratch could probably speak to this better, but we all, you know, again, through the television series and the, and the reboots and, and, and the movies, we imagine ourselves as, as, as the captain, right? And we think of ourselves as immersing ourselves constantly and seeing these, these amazing worlds and looking out the viewfinder. And it's like, no, he's sitting in a set and there's a director and uh, explain it. Like, this is very practical. This is the thinking man's work, right? Well, well, yeah. And I, I guess you're referring to, 
us. Um, yeah, like like er, er, like like we have put so much. We've projected so much on him mythologically, mm. right? But now he's come to the point where, oh, I really am the guy. I am. I am the spaceman. I, I am, you know, and, and, and that's a big leap. That, that's a leap across the bridge right to that doorway now. And do you know what I mean? Like, so when, when he was an actor or, you know, when he's acting is that if we were in his eyes, he'd be seeing lights and gaffers and microphones hanging there and, and the whole deal. And whereas for us as the viewer, we're seeing always what he was seeing out the window and only now he's seeing it for the first time. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that was, and I really like the way you you couched that, uh, Richard. In that you know there was all this other things. Everyone was so busy trying to get in their gags of their their weightlessness, and and here he just sat and watched, and we saw this mythical character um, see the final frontier, and and I think that to your point, Andrew, that that was I thought was so fitting because. Um, for all that he can be and, and flamboyant so, and big, he was just, he sat and observed. And I thought that was, that was great. I come back to, you know, I've known a lot of famous people and, you know, off stage, they're not the same as they are on stage, on screen, on camera. Rarely do the two match. Um, I could mention, uh, let me mention one where he was exactly the same on the air as off the air. And I was so incredibly lucky to have worked for him, and that was Cronkite. Cronkite was a caring, warm, deeply curious human being who loved sailing ships. And he said to me one day, he says, you know, Dick, I never understood why all the damn things on my boat are so expensive until I started following the space program. (laughs) And then he realized, you know, they're very kind of equal environments. Both are very bad for high technology unless you're really, really, really careful and you spend a lot of money making sure they're the best and the best and the best. Shatner lived up to the best I could have hoped for a guy who played Captain Kirk and influenced millions, including all those people working at NASA who would not have been sitting at those consoles for all those Apollo and shuttle missions and now monitoring, you know, the space station if it hadn't been for Captain Kirk. Talk about, you know, achieving your moment. And, and Richard, um, referring to um, Shatner looking out the window, Doug wanted to um, – he put something in the chat box. He really knows a lot about the ship design, and he wanted to chip in. Oh, oh by all means. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so the, the design of the new ship rocket is, I think, an excellent design. Uh, it's especially designed for safety, which is really how it should be designed, in that it has the main body of the rocket, um, and then it has a capsule on top. So it's, a, so it's a two-stage vehicle, but the upper stage has no propulsion units, just the capsule. Well, so, let, me, let, me, let me nitpick. Just before they come back down on the parachutes, when they're just a few feet off the ground, there are rockets. I guess they're solid fuel that's fire to cushion like the Russians when they land the Soyuz, there's that cushioning blast, so they land almost like a feather. Yeah, actually, so I stand corrected. There is propulsion, but it's but it's not like a normal upper stage. No, no, it's in not. which it, no. it pushes it further up. So, so what it is is the the first stage uh, with 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 the high power engines. 
um, goes, goes and pushes the capsule up to a speed that when the two stages separate, uh, that the capsule will end the, end the first stage will continue up uh, sort of one after another, but separating a little bit. And then they reach uh, the apogee or reach the height of the parabolic uh, arc. Yeah, I think they separate. I think there's engine burnout at about 100,000 feet. They separate and then they drift. They drift. They they arc upwards against gravity up to over 300,000 feet, moving farther and farther apart. Luckily, and then he lands the the rocket like uh, like Musk back on the pad. <clears throat> And the capsule, I hate that word, the spacecraft descends, and then when it reaches atmosphere, again, the, the drugs pop out, and then the main chutes, and they're lowered to the ground. And then that final few feet, there's a rocket that fires, so they're cushioned on a, a cushion of air, and they basically touch down like a feather. Yeah, yeah, it's really true. And, and that's a really safe design because what happens is that capsule – can escape if if the first stage starts blowing up, it can go ahead and actually escape. Uh, it, it, it has little engines that it burns and it, and it gets away. Um, and then and then it's just a matter of re-entering the atmosphere and it has it has the 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 capsule is designed to be stable to do that. Uh, and then as it comes down, the parachutes deploy really slows slows the speeds down. Then you have that last minute burst to really slow it down to almost zero you know meters per second. Um, but what I'd like to point out is I think uh, it, it was a really excellent design, which in fact allowed Bill Shatner to, to have his experience. And that is the capsule on the, on the top of the rocket um, can, can carry four people, and each of these four people have the largest window that's ever been put on a, a space capsule. I heard a number and, the other day that one-third, of the surface area of that spacecraft is window. It's, uh, it's amazing. I want to meet the guys who designed the windows, <laughs> really. And every passenger is the seat is positioned so that they have their own individual window uh, and, and off to the right. And so this is, this is the experience that they're trying to give, give the people. And that is when you launch, yes, you're filling the G's, but you're also seeing you know the the launch tower go by, uh, and then and then your your the clouds go. You know you pass through the clouds, and you're traveling. You know if you if you step on the accelerator and and step on it for like eight minutes, you can you can you can be traveling incredibly fast. Uh, it's probably not eight minutes, maybe four or five minutes. Um, and so what Shatner experienced was as he's looking out the window on the way up, he's noticing that. He's passing the atmosphere, and, and it just goes down below him. And it's like, man, is that all that we have above us? Is just practically a, a, a minute or two of atmosphere, and, and then we pop out of it. And that's where he he had this insight. And I imagine that he he was sort of shocked to see that you just pass through our air very quickly, and then you're up above. The air, this this blue covering, as he describes it, he calls he describes it as being a comforter, you know, um, and and it's like, well, all life is down in that blue comforter, mm. and then what is what am I seeing here? I'm seeing blackness, you know. If life is down there, then what's up here? Maybe it's death, you know. Um, and so I think that when he was, re, you know, when when they the when the capsule separated, 
at that moment, you're in free fall. Now you're falling up until it reaches the peak and you fall back down. Um, and so during that time, you're, you're in free fall, so you feel as though that there's no gravity. You can float around because you're your velocity is the same as the capsule that you're in. Well, the only difference between his flight, you know, and, you know, being in orbit is you're falling forever around the Earth because your forward velocity, 17,500 miles an hour, takes you laterally around the curvature of the Earth. So you're continually falling. That's why they call it free fall. But the Earth is curving out from under you. So it's at a forever fall. You're falling around exactly. the Earth in orbit. There's no difference in terms of Einsteinian equivalence principles to being in this parabolic arc in free fall and being in orbit in free fall. The only difference is the time. Because in orbit, you've got hours and days. In that arc, you've got minutes. Right. You know, it's sort of funny. Shatner, uh, you know, he's, he's not technical, so he... Yes, Bezos, is the atmosphere like a mile or two thick? Well, well because it, it looked like he went through it like he said, whoop. It was like exactly. ripping a exactly. sheet off you in the middle of the night. It was so sudden because they were moving at that time roughly 1,200 miles an hour. Uh, they, they reach around 2,000 at the peak when they separate. But it was moving very fast, and it looked so – because he's been an environmentalist for years. <clears throat> but to see this. To experience the fragility, that was the word. He used vulnerability. I would have used fragility. But the idea of the fragility of everything we hold dear really crashed in on him. And he's just sitting in, in, in you know, zero gravity with his fingertips clutching the windowsill, just looking out while behind him all these guys and gals are doing hijinks and tumbles and skittles and all that stuff, right. it's like he's in another universe communing with the ultimate reality of where we are. It was, it was so striking. That's why I wanted to put that image up because it was so emblematic of him drinking it in. And, and I think he was sort of struggling to understand, understand what he just saw on the way up yep. as he was looking out the window. And so I think he was, he was, looking out the, you know, after reaching separation, looking out that window and trying to make sense of what he had just experienced and trying to make sense of that, that layer below him and the black above him. And what is, what does all of this mean? You know, and how dependent we are upon that apparently thin layer of, of air, you know? Well, the relative size is, you know, people have talked about this, of course, now since he brought, great attention to it again the thickness of the atmosphere is like the skin of an apple on an apple you know or as um uh degrasse tyson uh tyson said you know if you have a classroom globe like we all used to grow up with classroom globes of the earth in our classrooms the thickness of the air is about two dimes balanced on a, on one of those classroom size three or four foot globes so it's incredibly thin and it got to him. I mean, really, it got to him. Doug, may I ask you a question? Sure. How many windows are on the capsule? I think there's four because there's four passengers and each one has their window. No, they can. I think there's six. They, can, they have room for up to six passengers, but they've okay. only had four to 
give them more room to float around for these early flights? So, so there's six windows. There's a hatch. So seven openings. Well, the, the windows are openings to the eyes. There's four people, four cardinal points, in a clockwise direction in an 11-minute flight. <laughs> Richard, I'm going ritualistic here, but I think Go ahead. a lot more. Well, I, I mean, there's, isn't it? Uh, I, take it, take, take the ball from me. Do you know what I mean? Is, is there more layering going on here than we know, or is this just all coincidence? Hmm. Well, you know, when he went up, remember they had to delay the launch from Tuesday <clears throat> to Wednesday, and I wish it was Tuesday because that would have been the great, you know, joke from from generations. Remember the joke? No. How he and Scotty are taking out the next generation of the Enterprise. I forget the number. And, you know, they're just sitting there as observers with this student crew and press and all that. And they have this emergency. And, you know, the, 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 the captain of the Enterprise says to Admiral Kirk, you know, would you take over? And, oh. and Bill says, no, no, you're, it's your ship, et cetera. And then he asked him a few questions, Kirk does, of, of the captain of the new Enterprise. <clears throat> and every, everything he asked him, you know, oh, that will be delivered Tuesday. Like the like you know uh-huh. tractor beam because they have to rescue this spacecraft in the Nexus, and they don't have a tractor beam, and they don't have this and they don't have that. It's all going to be delivered Tuesday. So when I learned that he was going to go up on Tuesday, I had to put that in my promo. <clears throat> and then because of high winds here in the land of enchantment and in Texas, uh, they had to delay till Wednesday. Well, I happened to look at the calendar. You know Wednesday when Wednesday was, which of course is the day of the of the uh, uh, Knights Templar debacle at the hands of King Philip, the destruction of the Knights Templar, and the name of um, uh, X-Files creator uh, Chris Carter's production company, Turn 1013 Productions. So yes, the symbology weaves its way through this. I mean, wait wait till we get into talking about Lucy which I'll uh, I'll get back to in probably the last hour. Uh, Rich. Yes, Keith. Uh, Jonathan Walmart, uh, Womack uh, said that uh, about a year ago, you told him that you had interviewed Shatner when Star Trek was still a uh, new show. Yeah. You were living in Springfield. Mm-hmm. He wants to know if you could talk about that. Well, it wasn't very memorable because in those days he was an actor. He wasn't into the reality, and he was just, you know, reading lines, and he was damn good. I was much more intrigued to talk with uh, uh, Leonard, with Nimoy, and uh, DeForest Kelly and I really got along. And I really had an affinity for uh, for Scotty, um, you know, because he, he, he actually was into the engineering. But Shatner was very facile in those days. He was glitzy. He was a young 34-year-old actor in Hollywood, came down from Canada. He was a tremendous hit. None of them expected to be a tremendous hit. So he was very on, on, on stage, shall I say. He didn't really open up like uh, Nimoy opened up some and uh, DeForest Kelly did. But my, my conversation with Shatner on the air was very unsatisfying. And he maintained that persona you know, it's only a TV show uh, for decades. And now as this 90-year-old guy, he became the captain for real. I mean, 
talk about a stunning closing of the loop. And don't everybody speak at once? So I have a question. Um, he was talking about the difference between the blue and the black and how the black was almost representing a death. And that was the transition and how thin the atmosphere was. And, um, and how rapidly. It was the rapidity of going from the blue, from life, into the dark, into the black, into, quote, death. And I think he was thinking of a metaphor. I mean, come on, he's 90, so he must be thinking, how long can this go on? Yeah. Well, I think he had a profound emotional effect. You think? Yeah. <laughs> yes, he well, did. I wish you would talk to my nephew and tell him the earth's not flat anymore because he could see where the shape of the earth. But um, a lot of people still think that the earth is flat. So I'd like to hear him say, you know, tell people it's not. Well, I'm, I hope to have Susan um, uh, on tonight, uh, Susan Sackett, who was Jean's right-hand uh, gal Friday. And she just had hip surgery, so she's in great pain. So she couldn't join us, but I'm going to be able to get to Bill through her and I'm going to invite him to come on the other side of midnight and talk about this and his new perspective. I have no idea whether it's going to work, but I'm going to give it a shot. Well, for what it's worth, Richard, uh, scratch here. Um, I've actually proven to myself that the, uh, the world is, uh, the earth is round. And again, as a young, uh, a young fighter pilot, I was tasked to do a, uh, the final portion of a, a mock run test card in an F-18 that just come out of maintenance in uh, northern Quebec. And I was given this mission and we're supposed to fly what's called a Ratowski climb curve. And that's where uh, you fly uh, what, these. Exactly. What is that? <laughs> yeah. So I, I was just going to explain. It's basically it's a way of accumulating energy and slingshotting yourself uh, in altitude. So if you just tried to fly a linear curve, up, you would run out of airspeed and 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 energy and kinetic energy. And you but saw there's a way. And, well, that's right. And you just couldn't get as high. But if you fly these parabolas where you you climb, and you descend and accelerate to a certain mock speed. So you, then you climb, climb and then you dive and then you swing up in the arc. Right, and so you you collect kinetic energy, and the higher you go, the the thinner the air is. So your true airspeed, your the more kinetic energy you physically fly faster. That's why these spaceships they fly at tremendous speeds. There's no resistance up there. Right, and so in this particular curve, I I I got myself out of control basically. This you know again all of my first weeks on squadron. Oh no, twenty four years old. Is you didn't get into a flat puppy. spin, did you? No, no, they, we'll save that for the movies. <laughs> Another egregious things in film in flying, but they, uh, I, I ended up going way above the the max altitude that I was that the jet is supposed to go. And even in the middle of the day, I saw the darkening of the of the sky, and I saw the curvature of the Earth up there. And I went, "All right, good to know." It Do you know the altitude? Back. How high you were? I'm not. I'm, I actually won't say. <laughs> You mean you're under restrictions? You can't say. Well, I, I would I would incriminate myself, so I would I ah, won't say. Okay. Yeah. Oh, well, and, can, and go ahead, Richard. So Scratch left a little detail out of that story, I think, 
Weren't you looking for something, Scratch? <laughs> oh, you were looking for Mantell's famous thingy. Well, in this particular case, I, I, I actually can relate to William Shatner because I was more worried about uh, running out of air for the engines and that shutting off and me falling out of that altitude. Yeah, and, but if you're uh, up there that high, there's no control surface friction either, so you do not have a controllable aircraft. No, I was what's called ballistic. I was, I was effectively... Uh, a propelled lawn dart at that point. Right. And, uh, and so <laughs> no, I was just hanging on for dear life thinking, Oh, don't stop engines. And I didn't touch anything. And I was just, you know, I, I saw the darkness of above me and I said, Oh my God, if this engine stops, I'm going to pop up here because there's no, uh, environmental control if the engine stopped. And, uh, Wait, you mean you lose oxygen and recycling of air and all that if you lose the engine? Oh, yeah, you would lose all their pressurization and everything else. That's that's the big risk oh, in any of these. Uh, in, certainly in that case, in my case, the pressurization is dependent on the engines running. In, in the case of this space capsule, um, any sort of compromising of the skin or whatnot, losing pressure would be, you know, disastrous. And so... In my case, I was very concerned about the engine stopping, and so I I, I willed the airplane back down to earth, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and to stay lit. The, or the you engines. are a lucky guy. <laughs> well, it was uh, uh, foolish and naivete and and a bit of curiosity that probably got me into that trouble and and out of it again. Okay, we've, we've got about forty five seconds. Were you looking for something? Not at that. I was just looking to survive at that point. Oh. No, I, I will tell you what I used to do at, on night flights. So when we come back, I'll tell you what. Yeah, exactly. Let, let's hold it there. Um, you know that I can't let this show go without doing this because, well, it's that kind of night. She packed my bag last night. Be flying. Okay. My computer is giving me problems. Why is my computer giving me problems? This is really bad. It's terrible. You know, it's nothing like setting up a, a transition and then you don't have the transition because your computer is acting really, really bizarre. Um, I don't like that. Why is it doing that? Okay. All right. Let's do this and we'll try that again. Come on. There we are. Well, we're talking about going into space. We're talking about Bill Shatner and his closing of the circle in an incredible, elegant way. When we come back, I want to uh, come back to Ron because we didn't really get his impression. Sorry, Ron. You have to be more aggressive. You've got to speak up and say, hey, I'm here. I'm here. And uh, I want to go back to Doug to talk about uh, Bezos' strategy, his architecture for making this possible a few years down the road for a lot more people. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Elton John.
Other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavor. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. I don't understand It's just my job I need a week A rocket
I don't think it's going to be almost any time at all. We're going to spend the last hour kind of discussing some specifics. Let me go back to Ron. Ron, you're being very humble and very shy and very modest. So tell us what you think of Bill Shatner and his flight. Uh, well, you guys have been covering it rather well. I, I just, I draw in more comparisons. You know, it's um, the, uh, you remember the film Galaxy Quest? Oh, I love Galaxy done. Quest, which was such a wonderful yeah, tongue-in-cheek spoof, of course, of Star Trek. Yeah, but it was a very loving spoof. It's talking about the same things that you're covering here. And it, it uh, caricatured that uh, famous run-in he had with the fans at one of the conventions that yes, you were talking about exactly. earlier. Yeah, yeah. No, that was drawn. Yeah. that was actually drawn, I think, from that experience. Right. I, I understand he wasn't terribly happy. Bill <laughs> Chapter wasn't terribly happy about that. But um, I thought it was I thought it was great. Uh, I don't think he has any complaints about the uh, the Orville, which is, you know, another loving parody of Star Trek. But actually, it's probably closer to the truth of what will be on those ships when they uh, actually are going out there. By the way, speaking of the Orville, which, again, is one of my favorite new shows, does anybody know what, ah. what's happened to it? The pandemic. They couldn't film anything. Okay. NASA can build real spacecraft and send them off to Jupiter, and they couldn't do a TV show? Hmm. Okay. Uh, Great stuff. Yeah, well, it's the same thing that's held up a lot of stuff. Um, The... um, Yeah, I'm I'm told that The Blacklist was about the only show that said, you know what? No more of this. And... Uh, worked their way around it so they could get this current, this upcoming current season on out on time. Most places just said, "Okay, we'll wait." Hmm. Okay. But because uh, they didn't like the way the last season of the Blacklist ended, the fans didn't like it, the crew didn't like it. You know, they just they had enough. They had no choice. They had to. Now, Robin used to, to watch that all the time, and I never could really get into it. Even though I do like uh, James Spader as an actor, I think he's brilliant. Um, I thought, I thought so, you know, the first Stargate, the, the movie, uh, he's only gotten better, but, uh, I, I could never get into it anyway. Let me, let me, so what, anyway. what is your reaction? You know, you've heard all hours. Uh, yes, I, uh, well, I haven't had, normally I complain. I haven't had any, <laughs> haven't had any complaints with any of the, Ron getting complain? a good deal for the, gosh, that's not the Ron yeah, I know. I'm, Ron complain. I know. Oh, I know. Uh, but, uh, well, you got to remember, I'm enthused about this kind of stuff as well. I am not the authority on uh, the trek of the stars as much as you are, but um, by any means. Uh, yes, folks, I'm the guy that was out of the country when it was running originally. Sorry for that. Oh, I wasn't going to give that away. Come on. Yeah, well, no. It says, well, I might as well. And might as well embrace it. So I, but, um, yeah, I have. Uh, I have very strong and polarized tastes about science fiction. Uh, something else I'd comment on, you mentioned Fred Paul before, who was a favorite writer of mine when I was a little too. Mm. And I was amazed when I finally saw him. It was in that video that features uh, your cruise. Oh. Said, oh, that, 
that's what he looked like. He looked kind of like G. Gordon Liddy. Yeah, he, he had did. The same sort of dour, to the uh, and that and that kind of gritty mustache. Yeah, yeah. It was, um, he, yeah, he he looked like a no nonsense kind of person. <laughs> certainly, certainly no frivolity in there. Although you may have other stories to tell, but uh, I. Uh, I'm just waiting to see what came next. I, one thing nobody mentioned was I think one thing that might have affected uh, Bill Shatner uh, was obviously that uh, rather strangely configured uh, New Shepard rocket is very, very smooth. That seems to – they definitely were thinking about how the passengers would like it because nobody had any complaints about you know shakes, rattles, and rolls. It was uh, – it's apparently very cushy, and uh, that's a good sign as well that they can just you know launch them up there, and it's such a smooth ride that you can take just about anybody. Well, I think uh, Shatner has proven that anybody can go, and that's going to open up a whole other panoply. By the way, one thing I didn't mention, and I didn't see think to put it up tonight, for some reason Branson has called a halt to the first commercial flights of the Virgin Galactic dart-like aircraft that goes up and down in a parabola until the fourth quarter of next year. And I'm not sure what that's all about. Uh, Scratch, do you have any inside information on that? that? No, I don't actually. And I I saw that as well. And I'm, I, I just, what I know about uh, aviation and, and uh, a little bit in my background, Doug, I have uh, quite a bit of, human factors and risk analysis, having led the air show organization, safety council and, and what have you, and the, the organization that grants the licenses to air show pilots. So I'm very uh, versed in, in organizational safety and, and risk management in aerospace. And the only thing I would uh, speculate on is that they've done some sort of risk analysis and they said, uh, we need to push this out. I, I, it almost certainly has to do with safety and just making sure they're they are as sure as they possibly can be that that is going to go well for them. That's that's my speculation based on what I know about aviation. Hmm. Well, I think it's a very informed speculation. Andrew, I want to bring bring you back in because you had some comments about Shatner's mentioning when he's standing there waxing incredible about the experience he brought in Mars. And yeah. you had some thoughts. Yeah, Doug and I have been going back and forth in the chat box, sort of not arguing. I will get to Doug momentarily. So. <laughs> well, he, yeah, as he's waxing poetic and, and ad-libbing and doing his thing to, you know, try to express these emotions that he was had experienced when he was up there and obviously still feeling the ramifications when they came down, he suddenly blurts out, Oh, I wouldn't want to go. I can't remember exactly what he said. One of you guys might know. Yeah, I don't want to go to the atmosphere. Yeah. yeah, he said there's no atmosphere. Yeah, I guess he must have been talking about the Earth's atmosphere and then said, you know, there's no atmosphere on Mars. Wouldn't want to go there. And then Doug mentioned that because I said he said it more than once. And he goes, Doug said, no, 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 it was just once. And I said, no, I think he said it in an interview. And then I, Doug, what interview was it that he, he said it within as well? Do you remember? Well, as uh, Business Insider, he, he made the comment that uh, uh, he said, I quote, I wouldn't go to Mars even if I could. Yeah, so my, my thought always, Richard, is, you know, we often, we often call out other people. Some people might call it projection. 
of the things that we really are. <laughs> I mean, it's my thoughts, right? And we often really mean what we say, even if it's couched, like even if it's an obvious statement from our consciousness or it's something deeper within meaning, we point at things through our, our, our language, our phrasing. And for him to sort of suddenly blurt out <clears throat> Mars, it's like, well, I mean, again, Doug says, well, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Of course it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But the fact that he said it twice, like once on upon landing, once in another interview, I haven't heard any of the other interviews. It's just an interest. I think it's like folks have a look at this on some level. I don't know. Your thoughts, Richard? Hmm. I'd have to see more of the context. Uh, I know in the in the interview outside the spacecraft that he was comparing the fragility of the Earth's atmosphere and the and the comfort, you know, the, the whole blanket metaphor of Earth that he'd just seen, experienced, viscerally experienced to his perception that Mars, you know, Elton John, not the kind of place to raise your kids. And he's interested in preserving life on Earth. And I don't know whether he's thought deep enough to realize that it's only by going to Mars we're going to preserve the Earth anyway. So that's a very long, interesting discussion that Doug and I can have. Mm-hmm. Um, let me let me move back to Doug. Doug, talk about Bezos architecture beyond taking tourists up and down because that to me is the most fascinating and and bill did do right by you know bezos slash my old friend craft ericky he mentioned on a couple of shows the idea of taking all the industry off the earth and putting it in space out of the living room saving the earth that way which to most you know mainstream journalists and Newspeople is totally foreign. They've never even heard the idea. And Bezos talked about it after his flight a few weeks ago. And now Shatner has picked up the cudgel. But, of course, they're all going to pay attention to Shatner because he's Captain Kirk. Talk about that. Talk about Bezos' bigger plans. Um, yes, but before I do that, let me address uh, a question that you brought up before because uh, of, of why are they suspending these Virgin Galactic flights, uh, yeah, sure. you know, for the time being. And there is, I, you know, I recall back when this happened, there's a really wonderful blog called Parabolic Arc, and they had on September 1st of 2021 report, colon, Branson's flight to space experienced serious anomaly. Um, and in, in this report, what it says is that uh, the FAA, you know, they, they get a license to launch. They have a certain sort of parameters that they, you know, have to stay in. Flight, flight, flight profile, I think, is the technical term. Uh, fair enough. Uh, and apparently they went outside of that profile. Uh, and so that's, that's an anomaly. That's, I, I would say that's... Uh, anywhere from moderately to very concerning uh, because that means you don't have, you know, full control of your craft. And so I, I could understand why they would say, you know, we got to get this, we got to, you know, figure out what's going on and get it under control because. Yeah, but it's going to take it, them a year. It, it really could. Yeah. It depends on the problem, I suppose, but they, you know, they've had a very long delayed and sort of torturous development program. They really, should have been able to complete uh, their upgraded craft. I mean, they won the Ansari X Prize uh, when the first their first craft went, uh, you know, popped out of the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. That was 2004. That was 17 years ago, and they have st- 
struggled mightily to, to get their, their new craft working properly with its hybrid engines. Um, so a, an additional year to me doesn't seem like that great of, of, of a delay given all that they have struggled with over the years. Well, it indicates to me the severity of a problem that we're not being told about. That is possible. I think it's also fair to say in, in other development, every one of these launches is is venturing out and into the unknown a little bit as well. And they're, they're learning something on every one of these. Uh, there's no question that there, there are a lot of tests that are going on any of these missions to, to refine it and progress it. It's as you approach aviation, even though we like, let's say for example, the, in the snowbirds, we will practice 175 times before we even get to the show season we still practice throughout the show season and even every mission we come down and debrief it and we talk about how we can improve something even if it's just a minor thing and so at these early stages and we are really preposterously early in the in the history of uh, commercialized space flight um, every one of these missions is a fact-finding mission and so they're going to be coming up against an unknown and then having to take a couple of back steps and say, okay, we didn't predict this or this variable is less controllable as you're suggesting, Doug, with that anomaly. Yeah, Keith, going, hmm. Keith Morgan just pointed out something very interesting. Keith, come on and, and uh, tell us, because I think you may have nailed it. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was pointing out that uh, the Virgin Galactic uh, Branson's machine uh, is an airplane and beautiful airplane stainless yeah. steel looks it like it's moving at warp nine when it's sitting still yeah but it, when it's coming back down it's going to have to make compensations for wind currents and so forth because it's a plane whereas uh Bezos, uh capsule just comes back down on a parachute goes straight up comes back down and it doesn't really have too much control about where it's going to go because the currents are going to blow it wherever it's going to go so um, when you're dealing with uh, aerodynamics in a plane, you have to compensate for wind directions and other little things that you have to compensate. You know, you're triggering a memory because I seem to remember that for several weeks here in the desert in the land of enchantment, the jet stream has been doing very funny things. It moved much farther south at one point. And I'm just wondering, if you're in an airplane using that feather mode, and you've got two pilots up front, and they're flying the, the, the aircraft. If you go through the jet stream, which is moving, you know, two, three hundred miles an hour, I thought that at the time was the answer for why they didn't follow their prescribed flight profile, because they had to come back down through the jet stream. And this seems to be indicating a much more interesting and, and potentially, you know, show-stopping problem. Thoughts? I agree. Yes, although that's that sort of thing is is quite predictable. Like even I did a short stint as an airline pilot, we would have really accurate information about where the jet stream is. This is not a guessing game, and and certainly those variables wouldn't be something that would push you know further commercial operations out a year. And so, and and bear in mind that well. Uh, they're both flying vessels. It's just one has controls to do it. They're both affected by that same air volume and sort of fluid dynamics that way. And so one is falling through it and one is is 
using flight controls to manipulate the the air to to change its course and direction and so that's uh you know it really i i wouldn't say it doesn't really matter about the air currents but they are those sorts of things are very easy to overcome in a in a controllable craft if anything the the one without the flight controls would be more susceptible to unknown that's what i'm thinking which is really i'm intrigued why unless bezos made him an offer that he couldn't refuse which is possible i would have thought it would have been safer for shatner to go up with branson because it is an airplane and you've got two highly qualified guys sitting up front at some point there'll be women as well pilots you've got redundancy you've got onboard flight control the bezos vehicle is completely automated and it's like that old joke about you know this is, you're getting on an automated airplane nothing can go wrong go wrong go wrong go wrong so Doug, compare the two we need to bear in mind that uh, virgin galactic did in, in their test you know their development program uh they did lose one craft in in uh yeah, one of the very very skill. stupid pilot error the guy is, feathered the wings true. before they were supposed to. It was, it was idiotic. It was like, what was he thinking? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Unless I, it was I, sabotage. I'm inclined to, to favor uh, Blue Origins, um, you know, Bezos's new shepherd for safety. Even uh, though you don't have pilots on board and it's all yeah. you know, radio to ground it's or automated it's straight up straight down uh the flight profile is i think pretty pretty straightforward hmm. in my opinion but i'm you know i'm no expert in that no they do have bigger windows come on well i, I can give a little uh, uh comparison in in aviation with this and i you know i was uh, clearly a, a fighter pilot flying western technology and in my civilian airshow career, I've been able to fly some former Soviet technology. Oh, really? And, and just, you know, basic fighter trainers in the airshow circuit. But the one thing that I will say about Soviet technology is that they make things very simple and, and with simple redundancies, where Western technology typically uh, has very complex systems and if you look at and i don't know the in, inner workings of the uh virgin galactic for the versus uh jeff bezos craft but i will say that knowing a little bit or some of the astronauts in the program one of the reasons the soyuz uh, system has worked really well is because it's very simple versus the the space shuttle which is again i use the word preposterously complex <laughs> and and the, there's there's points for simplicity, and I don't know about the sort of the mechanics. Oh, speaking of which, speaking of which, the first movie flight in the Soyuz spacecraft successfully touched down uh, a couple hours ago. Now it's amazing how time flies, and yeah, the uh, and the actress is back on the ground, or producer director is back on the ground. The uh, the guy who spent 531 days in in the uh, space station is back on the ground not consecutively, but that was over several flights. Um, and they're debriefing them in the medical tent. And I'm hoping they'll be doing interviews and we'll get translations because having completely non-astronauts reacting in the space station, trying to shoot a movie, um, that's going to be really amazing uh, if Putin will let them talk. Yes, 
Well, I'm hoping they have a seat for me, and I'll <laughs> learn Russian. Just let me let me ask. Yeah, you know, Rich, I was thinking that the, because these are non-powered flights, the shuttle and the uh, Virgin Galactic, you you've got to make compensation sometime because of wind conditions and so forth. And if you have to veer off course, you got to veer off course if you're going to hit the runway. So that's the difference here. That's why I think sometimes they they are not accurate on their flight plan because they're going to have to deviate because of some reason. Um, you know, see, I wouldn't have thought the FAA would have called them out on that because obviously when you're making those decisions in real time, scratch, correct me if I'm wrong, you got to do what you need to do to stay alive. Forget the, the damn flight plan. Well, well, yes, and the any mission that you're you're on, you have a, a profile, and I've I've glided as we practice gliding. If we lose uh, our engine on a single engine jet, we, all the time we call them, uh, you know, practice force landings or what have you. Oh, you don't call and, them the streamlined anvil mode? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, well, the F-18 that's what it becomes a flying brick, but. The the truth of it is that you train to deal with the, the, the changing variables of the winds all the time. And so uh, the difference would be, let's say, when we, we would stop flying perhaps at 35 knots, and that wasn't because we couldn't handle the wind. Uh, it's that we wouldn't want to have to eject and be dragged along the ground at those ah. speeds. It's not the fact that the airplane or the pilot can't handle those those changing air currents. It's that the implications of if you had to get out of the airplane, that the parachute would drag you at highway speeds down down the you know a bumpy ride. Wasn't there an iteration of of fighters where literally you ejected a capsule with both pilot and co-pilot, and that came down like a on 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 drogues and then mains, as opposed yeah. to you know jetting out from your seat, that kind of thing. That's right. The F one eleven did that. Drogues and why was that? Was that weight? Or was that simply because it was too complicated? You know, I, I don't know why they chose to do it in that in that case, but you know, there are some advantages. You don't have wind blast effects. Uh, you know, a lot of people get flail injuries when they eject or what have you, going into the airstream at four or five hundred miles per hour. Mm. Um, you know, it's fairly violent, as you can imagine. But you know, going back to the whole again, speculating on uh, Virgin Galactic, um, my impression is that they've they've found something in that in that anomaly and they said we need more we thought we had this variable controlled and perhaps we need more mm. research into it that doesn't mean they're not going to fly they're definitely going to be doing more test flights but again given the implications this is a commercial venture and they're taking people a, that a are year customers. They're taking a year to fix yeah. something yes which in aerospace that's not a lot of time um you know, it might sound like it if you're a paying customer, but really in aerospace, that a year is is a pretty quick turnaround for solving a problem. Mm. Just look at the 737 Max, right? Uh, and if, you, go if ahead. they were to have an accident and were to lose customer, that could really set everything back. Oh, that would be well, a showstopper. That would, that would kill it right yeah. in the crib. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm so. I'm 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 glad that Branson is not you know chomping at the bit and he's willing to take the time. Because one fatality, we used to say, you know, back in the NASA days that uh, uh, my old friend G. Harry Stein and I were recommending to NASA, of course, they didn't listen to us, that they should have each of these astronauts make a video 
in those days it was 60 millimeter film, as to why the program had to continue even if they bought the farm, as the expression goes. And NASA never did that. And it was so important because after Challenger, you know, we came within a whisker of everything just shutting down. Mm-hmm. And I think also it's something to bear in mind here that, you know, some people have referred to this as the renewed space race. And I, I see it Not slightly me. different <laughs> as there's it's actually a commercial space effort and it's in everyone's best interests all these entities, it's not about who's first at this point anymore. It's about collectively making this a viable uh, uh, business going forward for everyone. So I think they're more collaborative than they're not in, in this regard. And in truth, by Virgin Galactic stepping down for, not stepping down, but uh, slowing down for a year to make sure they're, you know, they're exactly where they need to be. Um, they're getting a lift from all these other things going as well. Exactly. It's the whole field. Hey, we got to stop at the bottom of the hour here. I'm playing this because when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about Lucy. Lucy, which NASA launched early this morning. And boy, is there a backstory there. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Somebody called you. Oh, why did it do that? Ah, I'm having problems with my computer tonight. This is really, this is really bad. So we will not do that. We will do this instead. Ah, darn, 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 darn. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Picture yourself in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies. Somebody called you, you answered quite slowly, a girl with a kaleidoscope This is the song that was playing in a tent in Africa in 1974 when a, a paleontologist named Johansson found a fossil millions of years old which after this song the Beatles song playing in the tent they all decided on the team to call her Lucy the oldest potential progenitor of homo sapiens found up to that time on planet earth 
A rocking horse people eat marshmallow pies. Everyone smiles as you drift past the flowers. The clothes go incredibly high. You pay for taxis appear on the shore, waiting to take you away. And this morning at 5.34 Eastern Time, NASA's billion-dollar Lucy spacecraft, which was put together from design to completion to launch in only 14 months to go 12 years into the outer solar system, carrying the namesake of the first potential proto-hominid fossil on a mission looking for the fossils of the origin of the solar system. And NASA said it again and again, by metonymy, the origins of humankind. They sent Lucy on a 12-year journey from Cape Canaveral this morning. And on the spacecraft, as an integral part of one of the key instruments, there is a 20-carat synthetic diamond. And so back to our conversation. Doug, I want to go to you because part of where we're going is the industrialization of space and the placement of infrastructure, industrial infrastructure off the earth into space like Kraft Eric Vision and Jeff Bezos has picked up the uh, idea now and uh, Captain Kirk, you know, Bill Shatner is faithfully echoing now in these interviews. Talk about the architecture that Bezos is putting together that ultimately could wind up utilizing the resources of the asteroids of the solar system. Yeah, so the, this suborbital craft, uh, Blue Origins or Jeff Bezos' company, this, the suborbital craft is called New Shepard. When you take a look at the design of New Shepard, it, it strikes uh, people who deal with, with rocket science as, as being unusual. It's not, it's not what you would normally choose to do suborbital tourism missions. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is because its engine doesn't run on refined kerosene liquid oxygen as you would expect. It's the easiest one, easiest propellant to use, and it has uh, the density and, and the force that, that you want uh, in, in a rocket engine for, for this sort of purpose. But rather, it's using liquid hydrogen and, and, and as its propellant, and that's, that's unusual. Um, and, uh, but Jeff Bezos has clearly explained what, what he's doing, and that is the New Shepard is just a step on the path, and the path is heading to the moon, uh, for Blue Origins technology, and in particular, 
the vehicle, the, the lander for, for, the, for the moon, uh, it's very helpful to, to have liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen engines because we, we now know that in the permanently shadowed craters at the poles of the moon, north and south poles, are places where there's concentrations of water ice, even as much as one part per 18. And so if you could take that water ice and uh, purify it and electro, uh, electrolyze it uh, and refuel the lander, now you've got a very cost-effective, efficient transportation system between the Earth and the Moon. And so in the, in the vision that um, Jeff Bezos has, has gotten for the, for the high frontier, uh, is that you go ahead and utilize the resources of the moon, uh, the, the actual dirt on the moon, as well as metals, and be able to transport that up into free space between uh, the Earth and the moon uh, to be able to construct um, facilities that would be able to do the, the heavy and sort of dirty manufacturing. And so Jeff Bezos says that what, what he's really ultimately working towards, and he, he thinks that this vision is not occur, going to occur in his lifetime, but he wants to set up the infrastructure that other people and other businesses can follow on uh, to be able to uh, sort of green the earth by taking industry, the heavy industry, uh, off of the earth and into space. Hmm. Hmm. What do you think? Scratch? Well, it, yeah, just maybe restate what what your your question is there in that regard. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if I follow what your question was. Well, what Bezos is building, and and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Doug, but he's building an architecture which builds on success and success, both in terms of technology, the complexity of increasing technology. So these tourist flights up and down. They're on a rocket, which is basically liquid oxygen, uh, liquid hydrogen. It isn't a kerosene rocket. Uh, it's, a, it's a developmental model that will eventually evolve into the second stage of a rocket that will go into orbit. That's the new Glenn. And then ultimately will go to the moon with passengers, right. with cargo in the uh, so-called new Armstrong. And then once you're at the moon, well, actually, once you're in Earth orbit, as Heinlein said, you're halfway to anywhere. So the only two guys in this game of the three, Branson, Bezos, and Musk, the only two guys that are in a, in a condition to capitalize on the known resources of the solar system are Bezos and Musk, and Branson isn't even playing in the same sandbox. Yes, as far as we know, but I really think that's that's a it's a good point. As Doug pointed out, some of the technical aspects of of that is, I I think we uh, are just seeing the tip of the iceberg here in the sense that um, while this is all commercial and fun and and sensational right now, um, these are very smart people that are that are thinking into the future well beyond their time in this earth. And the possibility to create the conditions for for you know large scale space travel and beyond to the moon and 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 beyond that, I think is not lost on on a lot of people, including myself, that these are just the baby steps that seem like I won't call them frivolous because it's very important and it's a profound change in, in the human experience right now, commercializing space travel. 
but really this is this i think in history will show that this they're setting the stage for something much much greater and they're using it in a commercial venture to to launch this but See, that's another reason why bill's you know great adventure is so important because i've heard serious commentators mainstream you know journalists uh, uh, opinion editorial writers columnists whatever dismissing both musk and bezos and branson as the billionaires boys club and why can't they spend that money down here on earth and the usual crap not understanding mm. the leveraging although i must say there are some now that are beginning to cotton to the idea of comparing this stage of space tourism and space development with the early era of aircraft and airplanes back in the 20s and 30s and scratch since you did fly a multi-engined airliner why don't you talk a bit about that history well i think that i think that is a good comparison and you think about the history of humans propelling themselves in some way um beyond their own propulsion you know we just literally in the last hundred years we've seen this exponential curve in the way humans can be propelled on on land in the air and now in space and for tens and hundreds of thousands of years we we're propelled by our own motivation and or harnessing animals and really it's in the the spectrum of human history it's just a flash and look how far we've come and so i'm projecting like like we're talking about with aviation we went in it's now just what was 1903 the first uh, known flight mm -hmm. a human flight and and even um you know myself at going mach 1.7 <laughs> in the 90s uh, and these incredible velocities and people have gone obviously much faster and now we're into space and everything else. It's really accelerated. And some people say, oh, well, space has slowed down and what have you, but it really hasn't in that big picture. We, we are doing something quite amazing right now with commercialized space travel that is going to lead to something else. And so, yes, in the early days of commercial air transportation, because early on, it was, uh, you know, there was all sorts of applications, you know, it was a postal service. They were thinking, okay, how can this, how can we make better carts that go faster so we can make them fly? And, you know, we tried balloons and everything else, but now being able to have propelled airplanes, we could do things faster. And then they realized there is the, the opportunity to have humans for leisure go from one place to another uh, very quickly through aviation and it was seen very elite and, and it was whatnot. all those rich people who paid for the development so Absolutely. you and i can get on a 747 i loved the old 747 and fly anywhere in the continent united states for a couple of hundred bucks well and that and you think of even the pan am clippers and those sorts of things those were entirely the flying boats to, the big yes. flying boats yeah Exactly. And that led to all sorts of technology that came from that. So I, I really think that is a good comparison that this early stages, these early stages of uh, commercialized space travel will lead to the democratization of space travel down the road. Well, look at the world's first multi multi billionaire and equivalent monies, Howard Hughes. What did mm -hmm. Howard Hughes create? T.W.A. Right. 
which was my mm. – I of all the airplanes that have ever been built, I think the most beautiful aircraft, which I think was built by Lockheed, was the uh, Super Constellation. I mean, she, she's sitting. She's moving at warp nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful lines. Yeah. Yep, perfect lines. Okay, we've got about 15 minutes left. Ron, um, you're back with us. Uh, I don't mean to keep cutting you off, but your system seems to fail tonight. Computers are not very reliable. So before I bring you on, no. that, that's one of the reasons, by the way, that I'm wondering, Doug, about Branson versus uh, uh, Bezos, because I've had several system failures with computers here tonight doing a live show. If I was, you know, at 62 miles and the computers just blanked out, I'd be dead. So having pilots up front like Branson or like um, uh, Musk seems to me an imperative. And when you look at the, the Dragon spacecraft, you see all those glittering, you know, glass screens and electronic cockpits and all that. They insisted from the beginning that behind all that glitter and glass, if everything fails, there are good old mechanical ways to get the dragon back safely to the ground. Very true. Um, uh, it's it's hard to say. I think I think systems can be made very reliable if, if they're automated. Um, so I can't say that um, Bezos' system would be uh, more dangerous because it doesn't have a pilot. Uh, no, no offense, Scratch. <laughs> None take it. <laughs> well, he does I, have better know, I, windows. He has the best windows, and I'm just wondering how. Because one of the early problems of of, of NASA uh, when they were designing the Mercury uh, spacecraft, they had no windows, and then the pilots, the astronauts, insisted they put in a window and a, um, a sextant, which is basically a kind of a jazzed up telescope that could poke out one side and they could see. But the original design was no windows because making a window that would be, you know, uh, shatterproof in orbit in space was beyond the technology of the early 1960s. Yeah. Um, I mean, these, this is suborbital, so it's not, you know, these things are not entering in at, at orbital speeds, for example. doesn't matter. A vacuum is a vacuum is a vacuum. Scratch, please tell him, okay? Well, yeah. it is, but I, I, I think what Doug's referring to is the, the intense heat and velocity of reentry right. that, that uh, those forces exerting on, on, on a, a spacecraft would, would be uh, quite different at high, high entry speeds. And so I think that's what that is. But, you know, in terms of the, um, the, the piloted versus unpiloted, I think, uh, I think you're right, Doug, in the sense that systems can be made for a very simple profile uh, to be automated. I think what we potentially could see out of, the, out of Branson's uh, Virgin Galactic is the opportunity for um, change. And that's where the, the mission scope could potentially open up, where they have the, the ability to um, alternate their, their recoveries and, and landing destinations. Whereas I think your parameters for the need to be pretty precise and narrow if it's an automated because it's designed to do only one thing, go up, kind of float, and then come right back down. 
whereas perhaps, and again, this is speculating, um, is with something that is a piloted craft, you then open up the opportunity for changes en route or what have you and, and flexibility that way. And maybe that's leading to, you know, future longer um, space flight profiles and reentry profiles that they have the ability to mid-course updates and what have you. Because that, that's the one thing that automation is tough to do right now is to change the change things once things are, you know, the triggers pulled. Hmm. Well, I think it's worth noting that uh, the the Blue Origin, you know, the new New Shepard system. Uh, sort of the way they get around that is they are located in such a large desert that if you're blown <laughs> off course, you don't really need to make a course correction. You just land in a different. It's a part very of large and very flat desert, and they landed <laughs> within a couple of miles of the launch pad. I was very fascinated that the winds did not blow them away at all. Ron, we're going back to you. At least I hope we are. Um, if there's problems there, let me. Let me... I'm mostly glad that um, it's been so enjoyable listening to this. I'm learning things, but there's a, a different motive possible for uh, Branson holding back and uh, everything else. I think they're anticipating some new technology showing up very shortly. What and do you mean? That, and... Really? Oh, I do because and tell then us, tell us more. They're businessmen. They don't want to be, yeah. They don't want to be caught selling uh, diesel-powered flivvers. You know, if there's uh, something better, I think that I think they smell it on the horizon and they're being cautious. I and and Ron, part of it. and Ron, wouldn't that bring Richard your comment about Roddenberry being reached out by the Russian ambassador? I think you did about Star Trek. Where's the Russian? That we have to talk about the Russians and what Scratch said. That they have a much simpler approach to things. The Chinese, the Israelis, the Indians who have proven you don't have to spend a lot of money to put something around the moon. I mean, I know they're probing in the in the South Pole crash, but the point is, there's a lot of nations now. The Japanese getting involved, and so if there is something on the horizon, speaking of other a- nations, I forgot to mention the Chinese sent uh, Taikonauts up to their new fledgling space station on this Saturday on October 16th for another player in the expanding game. Um, Doug, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is going to accelerate at a very much higher rate than some of the prognostications are, are kind of projecting out there. Well, we, I mean, basically the, the space tourism has been birthed, and it's fascinating that we've had two, well, really three companies, two suborbital and one orbital company that within a year's period of time uh, have both started their operations. Um, I would would like to interject here because we've been talking so much about the suborbital uh, vehicles, but recently we did have the Inspiration4, which was SpaceX, you know, Elon Musk uh, company, and it put four tourists up into orbit, which is a very different uh, scenario than, than the suborbital missions. And what I'd like to do is like to say um, we can uh, project out there somewhat further and imagine actually a, an orbiting habitat with tremendous size windows and, and uh, great, great views. 
um, that I could imagine that orbital craft could be able to dock to and then people could move in there and they have a tremendous amount of room, especially if it was inflatable. And then over a period of, of you know, two weeks or four weeks, they could be able to see the Earth turn underneath them as they sort of fly in, a, in um, high inclination. You mean basically sort of, a Hilton in orbit. Who is the guy in, in yeah. Las Vegas? Bigelow? Bigelow, Bigelow, yeah. Bigelow. Doesn't, uh, doesn't he have several Bigelow modules kind of attached to uh, the station and there's a couple free-floating in orbit? Yeah, one, one attached to the station and two free-floating. And we've heard nothing about that. Uh, if you keep up on it, you'll 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 hear about it. But I mean, that's the, kind of the, the the stepping stones for building a Hilton in orbit, and that of course gets you tourists, maybe folks, men, women, men and men, women and women, who explore the final frontier of space, which is not just space. I, well, I think I think I know what you're getting at. Um, yeah, so there, I'm I'm sure that will happen. Life um, does follow fiction. Okay. Uh, well, uh, the Enterprise mission is named for what? The Enterprise in the first place says is named for a space shuttle. Is named from what? It's it's comfortable. It gives people access, and so they you know that's the. I mean, if you came up with, just out of the blue, uh, um, a teleporting machine that created a bunch of flashy colors and vaporized somebody, and you were then told that, well, they have reappeared somewhere else, you know, you'd need a little more to go on than that, you know, so they... <laughs> Probably. So a lot of times you modeled on that. What's in 2001? A Hilton in orbit. And we d- probably don't have too much time to get into it, but uh, further on out, there is lunar tourism. Uh, uh, both uh, circumlunar and in, in orbit, as well as sur- surface tourism, uh, and uh, also Martian uh, tourism. And there is the concept of internal versus external tourism, where on Mars it may not be so much people coming from Earth to do tourism, but it's people who are moving to Mars. And then when they move there, they, they're the ones who are, are going to want to explore, you know, it's Take a tour well, that's of, Musk's vision, is he takes in starships, you know, 100 people at a time, and he colonizes. He's talking about a city of a million people. That's a lot of flights, and that's an awful lot of infrastructure. And I'm not sure that concept has been, you know, carefully uh, thought out. But he's building the, the, the railway to get you anywhere. Remember, Heinlein, once you're in orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. And the Lucy mission... One of the interesting questions that came up during their two-hour live telecast from the Cape this morning uh, when they had people on social media, there were people actually asking about mining and using materials from the asteroids as a reason why the Lucy mission had more than one interesting objective. Doug, what what, what would you say, where are we with that kind of arc? Yeah, I, we, you know, as, as Scratch mentioned, we, we really are at a point, and people need to understand this, we are a transition point in human history. Um, the, 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 the big accomplishment isn't so much accessing the resources of the solar system, but rather it is humanity beginning to move off Earth. That's, that's where the money is going to be. There will be a lot of tickets sold. There will be businesses uh, set up around uh, supporting 
people who settled down on the moon and Mars. And goodness, this this is happening. We are going to see it uh, in, in the relatively well, wait, wait, near let future. Let me let me let me push back a little because <clears throat> if you have to bring everything to keep people alive in in Bill's you know dead black space from Earth, that's one cost. If you establish bases in orbit and then you can utilize resources from the moon, from near-Earth asteroids, from the moons of Mars. I mean, I've seen calculations. It's actually cheaper in terms of rocket fuel, i.e. money, to get to and from the moons of Mars than it is to go from the Earth to land on the moon and come back. So once you're in space, using in-space resources makes the idea of tourism and infrastructure and industry and all of these you know, third-dimensional ideas, <clears throat> much more practical and on a much shorter time frame than dragging everything up out of the gravity well of the Earth. Uh, yes. However, um, the, the place where resources are, are most readily available is on planetary services to where, for the people who are there, the resources are, are around them, if you, if you cited the, the base uh, correctly. If, you're, if you only think about settlements in orbit, then yes, you have to pull it up from the moon. But if your settlement is down on the moon, you can use resources locally, in which case your delta V or your energy cost to be able to transport is far less to transport it across the surface rather than to bring it from some orbit to another orbit. Well, I was thinking more of colonization beyond the moon, like, like you know, the O'Neill colonies. I was involved with him for a while. Um, remember uh, Jerry's famous phrase, you know, I've discovered through calculation, this is a famous nuclear uh, physicist, high energy physicist who invented colliding beam, you know, accelerators. He said, I've discovered through the calculations that it's much a, a, a real civilization in space creates its own habitats. It's not meant to live on a planetary surface and the moon qualifies as a planetary surface. So, to me, that idea of infrastructure on an equipotential surface, like, you know, ore ships moving huge amounts of freight across the ocean for very little cost because it's an equipotential surface, is kind of where we should be headed. And we have You're no time because we're basically run out of time. I want to thank all my guests this morning, uh, Doug Plata and Scratch Mitchell and uh, Andrew Curry and Keith Morgan and Ron Gerbron. And, um, well, tomorrow we're going to do a rerun. And we're doing a rerun specifically because I wanted to connect with, you know, the idea of space and the idea of death, which what actually happens after death. So we're going to replay the reincarnation show that we did a few uh, days ago. And we're going out on this, which is Bill Shatner's vision. The final frontier. Because we're there. The Star Trek universe has been born. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before.